Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Now Hear This is a music review podcast and is not directly affiliated with any artists or album projects discussed on the show. Think of us like your record collection come to life. Except for that Vin Diesel single you bought just like everyone else this year. It was neither fast nor furious, and frankly, I feel as though we were implicitly promised at least one of those things. You got a record of your favorite songs. You got an hour and it won't take long. You got a pair of brand new friends. You got a ticket gonna stick to the end. I said, now hear this. Now hear this. Now hear this show. Just in being a person than a celebrity. She takes all the red, yellow, orange, and green, and she turns them into black and white. You know, I'm not just a mere cardboard cutout. But you tease, you flirt, and you shine all the buttons on your green shirt. You can please yourself, but somebody's gonna get it. Welcome back to Now Hear This, the great musical exchange. Oh, I can't even say that with a straight face. How about just a musical exchange? Not the great one. Just, you know, a good one. How about decent? It's like fine. Well, it's going to be a, a very guilty, shameful, angry exchange today, I think. <laughs> well... Speaking of guilty, shameful, and angry, y'all know me. Uh, my name is uh, Paul Kaminsky. I'm, I'm the co-host here, and I've got with me a, uh, well, I don't know if special guest does the trick, because you've been on the show before. You're almost like a- I'm a friend of the show. You're like a recurring presence, an omnipresence. How about that? Very cool. I'd love to be an omnipresence. <laughs> I've never done a podcast before. This is my first time. <laughs> this is, by the way, when Scotty in Star Trek is screaming, you can't cold start a dilithium engine. This is what he's talking about. Well, look, since I was a kid, I always wanted to be omnipresent. So <laughs> this is dream come true. <laughs> Chris Mercer, how are you, my friend? I'm okay. I'm excited to be talking about this album, which is actually a pretty important one in my personal musical development. Fun choice. Yeah, I'm, boy, well, we've got a lot in store today. I should say at the top here, Ryan left us with a list of the albums that he wanted to talk about for the next three years on this show. He left us with a very long list. And so I've got some guests coming in who are going to help me go through some of Ryan's albums. And Chris, you're the first one up here. Yeah, it's an honor. Yeah, well, it's an album that, you know, when you saw the list, I know you picked this one out right away, and I'm happy you did, because the album is Armed Forces by Elvis Costello, and Ryan had really been wanting to take me through Elvis Costello, and he never got the chance to do that on this show, although 
I did wind up seeing Elvis Costello with Ryan. I saw him on a bill with Blondie. Blondie opened for him. Wow. A couple years ago. And I had heard some of the tracks on Armed Forces for the first time live Mm -hmm. in that setting. I had never heard, for example, the song Green Shirt, which is Ah. a favorite song of mine. It was one of those weird experiences where I'm sitting there in in the audience and... I'm hearing this song performed and I'm realizing slowly, oh, this is going to be a favorite song of mine. I haven't had that happen to me too many times in my life. Another example I can think of is hearing the Bruce Springsteen song, Candy's Room, for the first Mm. time live. I had never heard Candy's Room before. Boom, blew my mind, became a favorite track of mine. So anyway. Beautiful song. We're talking about armed forces here today. Chris, you're going to come in and we're going to tag team this one together. First off the bat, can you tell me a little bit about your knowledge, your fandom, your association with Elvis Costello coming into this episode? So it goes back to 1987 for me, summer of 1987. And that's summer between eighth and ninth grade for me. So I was 14 years old. And it was a time when I had started paying a little attention to what the critics had to say about records. So, you know, sure. you know that time in your life <laughs> right? you start yep. to care about critics. Uh-huh. Let me tell you some of the albums I was sort of listening to at that time. Uh, Sign of the Times was a new album, and I was really excited about it. I didn't know you were a Prince guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, going all the way back. So it was exciting to have a new Prince album and for it to, I mean, what a Prince album. Remains my favorite Prince album, I guess. I mean, I can't say I've heard all 500 of them yet, but of the the ones I've heard, it's my favorite. Joshua Tree was a relatively new album at the time. Just imagine a time when the Joshua Tree was a new album. That in itself kind of blew my mind to think back on today. It was a favorite of my dad's who was in his, gosh, 30s, mid-30s around that time. Mm. And so I remember that one being played around the house an awful lot. Yeah. Well, there's a little Elvis tie-in there because I remember reading, I think, a Rolling Stone tidbit at the time that mentioned Elvis was in line that morning when it came out and he bought both oh, wow. yeah he bought both the cd and the lp which impressed me good for him yeah <laughs> <laughs> also at that time i was getting to know some classic rock for the first time so i was listening to the who and pete townsend solo yeah. stuff led zeppelin was all new to me and of course the beatles cds were coming out at that time so that's right early summer 1987 sergeant pepper had just come out on cd and for americans who were already into the Beatles like myself, the CDs were a revelation because we were getting to hear the complete albums for the first time. So that was a pretty, pretty fertile time all around. And I guess I got into Elvis because I had read some reviews. Yeah, I knew every day I write the book like everybody else. I didn't really know his music. And I just liked what I was hearing about in the reviews. I just kept thinking, well, this sounds like my kind of guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what is it about? What is it about it? Tell me, tell me. I was hearing about, first of all, the music being very intelligent, quite sophisticated musically. And I was hearing about his willingness to talk about all these dark themes and sort of taboo topics. And, you know, when you're 14 and feeling a little rebellious, that maybe sounds right up your alley, you know? Yeah, let's talk about some something other than, you know, straight up love songs and stuff. That sounds good. Let's do it. And so I, I got Best Of, Elvis Costello in the Attractions, early in that summer, and I uh, was just blown away. Totally blown away. I mean, I'd certainly heard some great lyrics from John Lennon, but I think these were the most literate and just densely packed lyrics I'd ever heard. What he call himself the... Uh... 
rock and roll's reigning Scrabble champion, <laughs> I think is what he referred to himself as. That sounds like something he'd say, as opposed to poet laureate of rock and roll, which is what like everybody else would say. You know, like, I remember reading that about him at the time. I think I thought I was a writer before I thought I was a musician. Despite having come from a musical family, I didn't pick up the guitar until I was 13. I'd written a lot of words before then. I tried to answer the essay question entirely in verse, you know, just like see if that impresses the teacher, you know, that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. And the wordplay was always there, was it? Oh, I, don't, I don't know. Nobody ever commented on it because you don't get articles written about you in the New Musical Express because you did an essay, you know. Like. But if you started writing with the words and then the music came later, has that pattern been set? Is there a set way of writing over the years? Does it normally no, start I, I with... Wish, I wish I knew songs appear and one way that I began was a turn of phrase would sometimes live in a notebook for maybe a couple of years before I would find the story or the melody that attached to it other times songs appear really in a sort of vision like way that they come and you're not really aware of time and space while you're writing them down it makes it sound terribly mystical but it's just hoping to capture them in some way and, and of course most of the time when I was a kid it was by repetition you know that experience you have once in a while where you sit down to listen to something and 45 minutes later your standards have changed <laughs> everything's different now you know wow so it was really a big deal for me that summer and very quickly I'm going to go through the Elvis albums I got that summer in order do it so the first two at the same time, Armed Forces and My Aim is True. So this was in your first batch. Wow. That's right. My first trip to the store to get Elvis albums, this was Armed Forces, one of them. Now, did you get the, it was the US version with the weird painted cover and stuff? Yeah. I mean, you say the weird cover, I think of it as <laughs> just the cover. <laughs> just the cover. Right? <laughs> well, we'll get into that later. Yes. And so it does not have Sunday's Best and it does have What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding. And it's a little weird for me today to hear it with Sunday's Best, I have to admit, which I think of as a Taking Liberties track. But to get back to the order really quickly, the next thing I got was Blood and Chocolate on cassette at Kmart. Wow. <laughs> and it was like the brand new Elvis album. It was the newest one. So wow. I could actually find it at Kmart. Then Get Happy and Taking Liberties at the same time. Then King of America. Then at the end of the summer, Imperial Bedroom. So that was my summer of 87 with Elvis there. So I'd covered some good ground by the end of the summer. And if I were going to introduce someone to an Elvis album, I think I'd start with either King of America or Get Happy, not necessarily Armed Forces. The early albums are... Some people really revere them, but they're not actually as important to me as some of the things that come along later, like Imperial Bedroom and King of America. You got quite the download there. <laughs> yeah, God, that's, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, falling in love in those teen years with music is, you know, one of the most fun experiences you can have, I think, in this life. You talk about Led Zeppelin hitting you at 14, 15 or yeah, so. And right. Yeah, when that hit me, I mean, it hit me like a sack of bricks. I mean... Hearing physical graffiti for the first time, just, oh, I think, well. Houses of the Holy, yeah. Yeah. It bonded my childhood best friend, Mike, and I so tightly that we wound up starting a uh, classic rock club in our high school mm. so that we could show other kids these albums. I guess it's kind of what I'm doing today with Yeah, that's podcast. right. <laughs> you were going back then. But anyway, yeah. So as far as Elvis Costello goes, with me growing up, I didn't have a big understanding of what he was my dad was a fan my dad liked those early albums because my dad was in his let's call it mid to late 20s at the tail end of the 70s and he was listening to a lot of new waves so he gave me the cars you know he gave me a bit of the go-go's 
And Costello was sort of in there. Like Pump It Up was a favorite song of mine from when I was a little kid. I mean, I just love that song. But I couldn't say that I knew much more beyond that from Costello. And it continued on like that for a good long while. Everyone heard, I don't want to go to Chelsea and a couple of these other ones, but it was basically just pump it up for me. Now, with the gigantic caveat of Flowers in the Dirt. Hmm. Okay. Now, for me, Elvis Costello, when I think of Elvis Costello, I think of My Brave Face and You Want Her To and... Don't Be Careless Love and... Don't Be Careless Love and... um, that day is done. Did you know Veronica at that point? Or Yeah, so Veronica was another one that snuck in there mm-hmm. for me. And actually, it, come to think of it, Veronica and Pump It Up were probably both there. And I knew Allison. Everybody knew Every Day I Write the Book, though. Everybody knew that one, right? Yeah, I didn't really, though. Even yeah. that one, I didn't, quite, I didn't quite get. So anyway, I for me, Elvis Costello is him playing with Paul McCartney. Like, that's just what I knew. I, and I, I was four and five years old range when Flowers in the Dirt came out. And I was about seven or eight when Off the Ground came out. And so those albums touched me particularly as a kid because they were like my Paul albums. And I know it's such a weird place to get started, like to feel like you have ownership of a Paul album and it's off the ground. (laughs) But pretty good album. For me, it was. So anyway, that was my Elvis Costello knowledge. And then a few years ago, when I got out to California, knowing Ryan was such a fan, and I think actually hearing you and him talk about these albums a bit on Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney Arquette Yeah, podcast, actually, which... we took a bit of heat for going on a bit too long about Elvis, as I recall, but we thought it was important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. And as so anyway, I wound up downloading some albums after I heard your conversation to try and get a sense of it. And it was when... I forget one of you was talking about you didn't like Spike because it was too commercial or slick sounding or something like that. And I was like, you know what? I think I would like that because <laughs> I like the commercial and slick sounding stuff. So I downloaded, <laughs> I listened to Spike yeah. and God, I loved it. Let him dangle all that stuff. Yeah, it's I not all that absolutely... commercial or slick, actually. It's <laughs> not really. Yeah. It's yeah. actually super dark. Yeah. Um, so I knew Spike a bit. Yeah, okay. And then as I mentioned, Ryan and I went to go see Elvis a couple of years ago. It's actually the second time I saw him, <laughs> even not knowing much about Elvis Costello. I also saw him open for the police in 2012 or 2011 hmm. when the police had reformed and stuff. And the arena was so not full at the time that the ushers wound up taking us from the nosebleeds all the way down very close to the stage. So I was actually super close to Elvis Costello (laughs) for that one. And yeah, I always enjoyed it, you know, but I never really did it. So this going through and listening to Armed Forces, start to finish, Soup to Nuts was an interesting experience. What do you think about the fact that you're listening to a 24-year-old, roughly? God, when I read that, I was (laughs) stunned. He sounds like he's 98 years old. I just, in terms of 
wise beyond your years kind of stuff. And I mean, maybe it's just because he's so verbose. You know, I had a friend over the other night and I played him a song of Elvis's from 75, I think, where Elvis is like 21. It's a song called Imagination is a Powerful Deceiver. The voice that comes out of the speakers is really that of a wizened, grizzled man. It's like, yeah. Yeah. You're trying to make connection You heard whispers in the hall She'll be out again this evening When you come around a call So you dodged the lady killer You came creeping across the floor And it sounds so not like what was popular at that time, you know? The punk was the big thing around 77 you know 76 77 right it was maybe cresting by the time you hit 78 79 but punk was really what people wanted to listen to and it's the new wave that sort of gave a counter to that but what i find so fascinating is these pub rockers like nick lowe who produced this album and his cohorts dave edmonds and those kinds of people making weird power pop in the late 70s. Do you know Graham Parker? Not too much. Okay, because he's much. really one of the giants of that early pub rock scene. I think maybe the greatest of the songwriters. And people compare Elvis and Graham Parker all the time because of the similar like venomous singing style. And that's what makes Elvis stand out from the other pub rockers. Because you could, I don't know, if you were being, I guess, a little glib about it, you could say, oh, well, that's a little M.O.R. sort of, it's... Swinging for commercial fences, that pub rock sound or whatever, but it's mm-hmm. not being a, a bit non-committal. Maybe you, you could make an argument for that. Before they started comparing Elvis to Graham Parker, they were comparing Graham Parker to Van Morrison. Okay. To his detriment. I saw Graham Parker in concert one time. He was saying, yeah, nowadays they call it an homage or whatever, but back then they just said you were an imitator. <laughs> there was no <laughs> influences or anything like that. So they just said I was imitating Van Morrison. And that gives you a sense of pub rock, though. There's a bit of an R&B quality to some of it, mm-hmm. you know? And you hear a bit of that R&B influence on My Aim is True by Elvis, too, his first album, which really sounds like pub rock, My Aim is True. I get that it's Clover, but it's very much the pub rock sound to my ear. To me, what I'm responding to in his early music is that beat group sound, that Mersey sound, which is... Mm. I mean, there's a lot of Beatles all over this, even this album, actually, and all over that pub rock scene. And when Ryan and I did season one of Now Hear This, he showed me The Jesus of Cool by Nick Lowe. And I fell in love with songs like Love the Sound of Breaking Glass and even the song, oddly enough, Little Hitler, which is on that album Mm -hmm. and referenced in this record. But he was doing Beatly sounding stuff too. And there is a nasty underpinning to his as well. His voice just sounds a little sweeter. And Elvis Costello sounds like sounds like uh, the sound of breaking glass. Elvis, you know? Yeah. And Graham Parker, not to dwell on Graham too much, but his voice might sound more venomous than Elvis's. And I think sometimes by 79, like with Squeezing Out Sparks, I think the lyrics are sometimes more consistently venomous. You know, yeah. Take it for what it's worth. Because sure. Elvis, by 79, Elvis was already burying his style quite a bit, moving into eclecticism. And Graham was still really pumping out the new wave.
Well, this album, actually, it surprised me how easy of a listen it was. And I don't say that to be critical. I say that to be like, it sounded softer musically than I was expecting. When I'm thinking about Elvis Costello, I'm thinking about an angry dude. Hmm. And I'm also thinking about the sound of his later, you know, like Spike and things like that, which has more of an anger in the music, in the musicality almost in, mm. in a way. I don't mm. know. There's a, there's a sharpness to it. And this one I felt sounded a bit like radio friendly in mm. a way. Yeah. And I'm not saying as a good or a bad thing, it simply took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting that. Mm-hmm. But lots of commercial sounding songs on this record. I don't know if the, you know it had quite the hits as maybe some of his other pieces, but... Uh, So this is from the book God's Comic by David Gouldstone. And he says, musically, Armed Forces is Costello's most pop-oriented album. I guess he means up to the time, because clearly Punch the Clock is more poppy. But though exploring a number of different styles within this format, as I've already mentioned, this ensured the album's commercial success. And I might as well point out that I'm not one of those people who regard commercial as a synonym for bad. But there is a possible paradox here. Although I'm sure Costello doesn't want to be a purely didactic artist with a message to which everything else is secondary, the care he gives to his lyrics proves that he regards them as important. Armed Forces is dressed up in so many sing-along Elvis tunes and arrangements that there's a danger that the average listener will entirely overlook the lyrics and their meaning. This is Mm. interesting. In a perceptive article in the August 1984 issue of Marxism Today, one of the few intelligent pieces of writing about Elvis... (laughs) Simon Lockwood discusses the aural packaging of Oliver's Army, claiming that most people who heard the single on the radio or even bought it were unaware of its anti-imperialism. This is, I think, a valid but not insurmountable point. It can equally well be argued that if the lyrics are important, then the first step is to make them available to as many people as possible, in the not unreasonable expectation that a proportion of them will eventually wonder who Oliver is and go on from there. Wow. Well, if I'm not mistaken, I think Elvis himself was annoyed at people's lack of listening to his lyrics in general, from what I understand, not really realizing that people weren't necessarily sitting down and studying what he had to say. They were listening to the extremely catchy (laughs) music going on there. At the same time, Elvis himself talks in the liner notes, in the Rhino liner notes for this album, about how, yes, Oliver's Army, that piano part, is definitely influenced by Dancing Queen. He says as much, (laughs) you know, and he, he talks about how into like wings singles they were, they would show up in, in a truck stop and there'd be a wings single on the jukebox and it was just great, you know? (laughs) So it's not as if they were snobbish about the big tunes of the day. I think he just had a lot to say and he was hoping people would maybe take the time to be as intense about it as he was. He strikes me as an intense dude. Yeah. And I could see him maybe being disappointed in how people were listening to his music or something, you know, like being a little judgy in that way. Well, I, I have to admit, I mean, let's go back to little Chris Mercer, 14 years old, summer of 87. I don't know what the fuck Oliver's army's about. Yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm hearing just the coolest tune I've heard in a long time. Chords that surprise me, tunes that twist and turn and snake away from me surprisingly, and lyrics that are mainly fascinating. But I don't know... I have no internet, right? I don't know what the what the hell that's about, you know? Yeah, yeah. I could tell it had something to do with British imperialism. I heard Johannesburg. 
<laughs> you know, I, I right, heard Hong right. Kong. I, you know, I heard all these these references and got. I knew what Oliver Cromwell roughly was. Wasn't a great history student, but I knew roughly who that was. But yeah, I didn't know what this was about. I just heard a great, great tune with beguiling lyrics. That's the thing, right, too. The flip side of that is what Paul Simon used to say, you got to slip the medicine in with the mashed potatoes. <laughs> there you go. Well, let's do a little bit of an overview about where Elvis came from and, and how he sort of rose to fame and stuff. And then we'll kind of get in here and talk a bit about the album more in detail, because I want to touch on some of the stuff you said about Oliver's Army as it relates to the rest of the record's sort of mission statement, which I found very interesting. But Elvis was born Declan Patrick Aloysius McManus. In August of 1954 in London, so about 10 years younger than the Beatles. I always do that. I'm like, I always measure things in Beatle time, <laughs> That's right? It's okay. about 10 years. About 10 years younger. I than and your listeners are fine with that. That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he was born in London, actually, but um, his father was a jazz trumpeter, so some similarity to McCartney there. And his father went by the stage name De Costello and actually had a minor hit in Australia with a jazz trumpet version of The Long and Winding Road, which I thought was hilarious it's and amazing. It's a small, big world, isn't it? I wonder what those two talked about on their first date, you know, Paul and Elvis. And I have to imagine the trumpet came up and that story of Long and Winding Road came up. He really became a singer the year after I was born because singing was a better living than playing the trumpet. And he had that talent. And he recorded a lot for the BBC. I would go with my dad just when I could at work and bands would come in and haul their equipment in and they didn't have massive road crews then, the Hollies or the Mersey Beats or the number of people that I saw in that time. It was a very strange perspective for a 10 or 11 year old. And of course I was waiting for my dad to sing one of the hits of the day because dance bands were the way that you heard most music in those days, people covering records out of the charts. In 1971, at 16 years old, he started a folk duo called Rusty, and then he went to college in Liverpool. So he, again, more Beatley similarities. He's got that. Even though he was born in London, he sort of had his formative years in Liverpool. And after school, headed back to London, where he formed the pub rock band Flip City, which he stayed with for two years and pub rock, as I mentioned, was where, you know, Nick Lowe was innovating at the time. And there's Brinsley Schwartz, which actually was Nick Lowe's band. And they opened for Wings on that 72, 73 Wings tour once or twice. They, I think they played two or three shows, something like that, which is fascinating. And Elvis appeared on broadcast television for the first time in 1974, backing his father, De Costello. And it was during these years where his songwriting really kicked into high gear and he started putting together demos to submit to record labels as a solo act. Now, what was interesting, what I found out is that they really liked his songs, but tended to be a little iffy on him himself sure. as a star. Sure. He was, though, signed to a small indie label called Stiff Records, and his manager at the time suggested changing his first name from D.P. Costello, as he was going by at that time, to Elvis. Now, I did look for like specific reasons why Elvis in particular, but it may have just been for sort of the karma or something. like. Yeah, it was his manager, Jake Riviera. And so apparently Jake Riviera came up with that, sort of a sacrilege. Oh, basically. audacious. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's right. I'm Elvis. <laughs> i mean who would have thought that you could take that name and kind of own it and so now when people say elvis 
You've got to distinguish. I mean, you kind of know. It's usually Presley, but... So in 1977, he released his debut album, My Aim is True, which went top 20 in the UK and top 40 in the US. In fact, his singles in the US weren't even available. You had to pick them up as imports. So Costello got himself arrested. He was busking outside of a CBS record executives convention in London. And I guess he was making a ruckus to the point where he would be carried away, almost like the Beatles were hoping to at the end of Let It Be. You know, I hope they drag me off. You know, I wanted the cops to drag me off. Get off those drums, you know. Getting arrested and making all this noise outside of that CBS convention, he got himself enough attention to catch the eye of Columbia Records, who went on to wind up distributing his records in the U.S. Now, in the U.S., his Columbia-issued single, Watching the Detectives, took off as a hit, and it was added hastily to the American release of My Aim is True. And that single was recorded with uh, a fellow named Steve Naive. And Steve would wind up linking up with Elvis along with Bruce Thomas and Pete Thomas, no relation, to form the group The Attractions around the same time. I just want to tell the story of Steve Naive's audition for The Attractions. Elvis says he, roughly speaking, I'm paraphrasing, but Elvis says he came in, he left the piano throbbing, he drank a bottle of sherry and fell asleep on the floor. (laughs) My kind of fella. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, that band, you know, they are super, super tight. In fact, they're a highlight of this record. So they get together and they put out an album called This Year's Model. And it's on the touring for This Year's Model where they really started to click as a band. They really were just playing a lot, playing a lot of gigs. And in December of 77, this is a pretty cool moment and you can find it on YouTube. I suggest everybody does it. But in December 77, Elvis and the Attractions wound up picking up an empty slot from the Sex Pistols who had to drop out of playing on Saturday Night Live. So Lorne Michaels signed Elvis on to play the show and the attractions on the condition that they not play the track Radio Radio, (laughs) which criticized the commercialization of radio airwaves. So Elvis began his performance with a different song and then stops it about halfway through the intro to that song. And then they burst into Radio Radio. And I just love it. You can see the impish, nervous, sort of (laughs) fuck you look on his face when he's doing it, too. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, there's no reason to do this song here. So anyway, it's awesome. It wound up getting him banned from SNL for over a decade until the ban was lifted in 89. I don't know what the criteria was. He came back for Spike. I remember him doing Veronica. So anyway, that kind of propelled him into stardom in the US and his next record this year's model became a big hit. And uh, that's the one with Pump It Up on it. And I don't want to go to Chelsea. So those are the big hits because those were the ones that reached my ears just as not even an Elvis Costello fan. So amidst the flurry of this fame, Elvis and the Attractions are touring incessantly. And much like what happened with the E Street Band between E Street Shuffle and Born to Run, this just tightens them up. And so the band's playing becomes just clockwork. It's an absolute powerhouse of a quartet at this point. Like when you hear this album, just everybody is playing just 
their oh, hearts out. Are you kidding? Yeah, this is, you mentioned that they were tight, but whew, it's beyond tight. It's intimidating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? they, they, it's like they went to war. It's yeah. like they went, they're coming back from war having, or I don't know how to describe it even. It's funny. We talked about this a bunch in the Bruce episode. And the E Street Band did the exact same thing. You know, they just went out there and played night after night after night after night and just got to be this force yeah. to be reckoned with. And yeah. that's exactly what happened here. So since 1977's My Aim is True, Elvis had linked up with fellow pub rocker Nick Lowe. As Stiff Records had initially pitched Elvis not as a solo act, but as a songwriter for Lowe's musical compatriot Dave Edmonds. Elvis didn't wind up doing that, but Lowe and Dave were tight and they all got to know each other, Lowe would wind up producing Elvis's first five albums, about one a year, give or take, maybe more. I don't really know the count. <laughs> Armed Forces was no different. So this is the third in that stretch. And I mean, you talk about the guy's output. Dude put out, I think I'm going to spoil this. I was going to save it for the ending. But as of 2020, Elvis Costello has put out 33 albums. Yeah. Yeah. 33. That's a lot of albums <laughs> about 15 of them pretty good <laughs> yeah, right. it's a lot. i mean even by look mccartney's prolific yeah he's not 33 albums in this stretch of time prolific well and elvis has more than his share of b-sides unreleased etc you know when the rikos came out we got in when was that 93 ish uh, we got a massive outpouring of extra material then when the rhinos came out a decade ish later we got another massive outpouring and it just turns out that it's kind of endless with this guy, too. You know, like we said about Paul, he's he was busy writing 10 songs that day. <laughs> you know? I, I was, right. That's right. In fact, I was watching an interview with Paul talking about Elvis today, and he was talking about their relationship. And I think it was not a necessary, and I'm sort of going off on a tangent here, and I apologize, but it, it's sort of relevant to what we're talking about. I don't think that their relationship was necessarily a good one. Uh, just on an interpersonal level, mm -hmm. I think Paul kind of found him to be kind of combative and disagreeable. And I think Paul also recognized that that was probably helpful to him. Mm -hmm. And the proof is sort of in the pudding when you get to what those songs turned out to be, the hits that they made together. Yeah, they did some good stuff together. Yeah. But I think Paul was maybe a bit put off by him. And amongst the things that he said, he said, listen, this guy has just got nothing but ideas. <laughs> Paul said that? <laughs> yeah, Paul said, we were talking and I was like, well, do you have any, do you have any ideas? Do you have anything that you want to start with? And he's like, look, have I got ideas? And he pulls out, <laughs> he pulls out a book, a big, fat, thick book, just filled with shit that he's writing down every day of like something he heard on a train or like a title that occurred to him. And he's just got nothing but these scrawled notebooks. And so he heaves these things out and hands them to McCartney. He's like, all right, here's our starting point. And McCartney, I think was a little like, whoa, relax guy. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm in here to have some fun. Like, I think my manager told me this would be good for me. What are you doing? This is a lot. <laughs> Well, in terms of the mood surrounding early Elvis, I do want to read this letter from Jake Riviera, his manager. This is a biography of Elvis written in 1981. Okay. Oh, wow. By yeah. Krista Rees. And first published in 1981. And the opening page of this biography is a letter 
from Jake Riviere. It's a photocopy of the letter. And here's the letter written to the author. Dear Krista, I am replying to you partly as a measure of courtesy. I would like to notify you that I will do everything in my power to prevent you from writing a book about Elvis Costello. I would point out, in the few interviews Elvis has given, the copyright rests with the publisher of those interviews. If you plunder these articles, you will be infringing on their copyright, and I shall vigorously assist the publishers of these articles in nailing you and your publishing company to the wall. Thank you for enclosing your address. If this matter goes any further, I shall pop in for a visit when I am next in New York. Kind regards. Wow. Yeah. Damn. So that's the vibe as of 1981. <laughs> <laughs> there also are amazing stories of Elvis being belligerent toward the audience, showing up drunk and like doing a 30 minute show and storming off. There were some dark times in this early period around Elvis. Wow. And this is 1981. So this is after the incident, which perhaps we dare not name, but this is even after that. Well, look, I mean, I'll just say listeners, you can go and look up what we're talking about, but basically Elvis got super rip roaring drunk and said some pretty horrible shit. And it was something that he had to answer for and continues to answer for to this day. I mean, there was, he did a collaboration with Questlove I was reading and um, they talked about it a bit there, but anyway, you can look that up. This guy is no stranger to controversy. Sounds like kind of a dick. That's the vibe you get from McCartney. Like <laughs> McCartney was like, it was so funny hearing McCartney be this candid because sometimes you kind of have to parse the corporate speak with McCartney and trying to figure out what he's actually saying underneath it. Yes. But McCartney goes like, yeah, I'd, I'd bring him recordings and I'd put it on and he would take a listen and go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I hate everything about that. <laughs> In fact, at one point, uh, he's got a, a bag, you know, with a lot of books in it, and they're, they're all things he's heard in pubs or little things that have occurred to him, little sayings, little titles and stuff. He's got a lot of stuff. And I made the mistake of sort of saying to him, once, well, well, have you got any ideas? We just read back, have I got any ideas? And then, <laughs> 50 million ideas. And as I say, with, with Elvis, with young Declan, you're not going to have too much shyness there. That's one thing. He's not shy, you know. He's definitely got a very opinionated uh, attitude. You know? And the look on McCartney's face as he's talking about this was just like, he's like, all right, guy, like, <laughs> sure. Boy, yeah, that must be the most extreme, other than John Lennon, and maybe more than John Lennon, the most extreme collaboration he ever had as far as someone standing up to him, huh? Yeah, and again, not to harp on this too much more, but like, yeah, whatever, like, it's a podcast, we could say whatever we want. Um, that collaboration is at a certain time in McCartney's career where he's just taken a couple commercial beatings He's taken a couple critical beatings. Yes. And that's right. McCartney entering the 80s and then McCartney even through the first half of the 80s is maybe the strongest commercially he's ever been. Oh, he's sailing along through yeah, through 83. Home run after home run after home run and then you get two duds in a row 
in terms of the beating he got for Broad Street and the beating he got for Press to Play. With spies like us in between. <laughs> well, we're going to put that aside. <laughs> hey, I top five, though. Top five, though. That's right. Right. He's not in the place he once was. And he's certainly maybe lacking a bit of the relevance that he had had at other points in his career. And so I don't know. I think it was his manager, Paul's manager, that put him up to it and said that you want to get together with this guy. And Elvis Costello's reputation was not great on a, like a personal level, but his reputation for songwriting was you know top-notch. And so they gave each other different things. For Paul, he got a little bit of a shot in the arm of relevance in the later 80s. And he got some damn good songs out of it. And for Elvis, you know, Elvis got some damn good songs too. I mean, that was yes. Veronica was one of them, right? For like, sure. The ones yeah. he got. So like Candy, what a giant song that is. Yeah. Pads, Paws, and Claws is one of my favorite <laughs> tracks. I know it's not it's like- It's not so like Candy level, but okay. <laughs> a screaming hit, but I love it. I mean, as, as far as the songs they made together, Pads, Paws, and Claws is up there for me. I really love that song. Anyway. He did that one with just guitar on David Letterman at the time. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to this program, the one, the only, Elvis Costello. <laughs> The feline tormentor Not in her part of a wife The drunk town lamented It's her miserable life When it's full of that beer champagne She bats paws, bats paws and gars These were my two, like, acerbic heroes in the same room. Elvis Costello, David Letterman. Oh, it was, it was wonderful. <laughs> it was wonderful. <laughs> At one point, Elvis was describing the the song wheel, the spinning song wheel. Oh. And um, David Letterman said to Elvis, Elvis, you think you might be spending too much time alone? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Could he laugh at himself? Could Elvis laugh at himself? Yes, no, he had a good good sense of humor, yeah. I think by 87, he'd mellowed out quite a lot. Let's travel back to 1978 before I derailed this entire conversation just to talk about where Armed Forces came from. So... We talked a little bit, okay, he's back in the studio, he's with Nick Lowe, Nick had did the previous two albums, the attractions are running at full steam, so Elvis got this new crop of songs, some of which were holdovers from earlier albums. Armed Forces was originally intended to be named Emotional Fascism, and Costello said of it, two or three half-formed notions collided uneasily in that title, although I never would have admitted to having anything as self-conscious as a theme running through the songs. Any patterns that have emerged did so as the record was completed or with the benefit of hindsight. Personal and global matters are spoken about with the same vocabulary. Maybe this was a mistake. Betrayal and murder are not the same thing. The first of them only deadens the soul. Some of the highly charged language may now seem a little naive. It's full of gimmicks and almost overpowers some songs with paradoxes and subverted cliches piling up into private and secret meanings. I was not quite 24 and thought I knew it all. So I thought that that was a, um, an interesting quote about this. I mean, he, the Beatles talk about concept albums in the same way. It's like anything that made Pepper a concept album was an accident, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. And, and I think this is more of a concept album than Pepper, actually. I think what he's trying to alert you to there, and I think this applies to the individual songs too, as we get into them, 
is that there are themes floating around here. Don't think of it as a linear narrative or a concept album where each song is going to illustrate a little point, but rather that there are recurring issues and they're going to be peppered throughout and you're going to get this constellation of themes that will, by the end of the album, it, it all will have emerged, right? It won't be neat and tidy. Right. And oddly enough, though, there's such a theme in this album of conflict, whether it be soldiers, like literal soldiers and war and literal conflict, or the conflict between people. It's something I picked up on and perceived without reading or looking at anything about the album, just on first listen. I realized that a lot of these songs kind of sounded to be about similar things. Yeah. Maybe that was just where his head was at the time in a very conflicted space, but... The contradictions are okay, because again, it's a constellation of themes. And when you're looking at them from this angle, it looks this way. When you're on this other song looking from another angle, it may seem contradictory, but the themes are consistent. Mm -hmm. Shades of meaning, rather than outright contradictions. So the album was released on January 5th, 1979 on Radar Records in the UK, and this was part of the Columbia deal in the US. It was produced by Nick Lowe, recorded at Eden Studios in London. Costello wrote every song on the album except for the American release tack on What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, which is a cover of the Nick Lowe song. That's a Nick Lowe tune. And we talked about that a bit in the Nick Lowe episode in season one of Now Hear This. So we know that we have different versions of the album from the British and American. It's just a one track difference, but we do have those different versions. And the, the album's been reissued a number of times now. So I wanted to give our audiophile oriented listeners a sense of what I think sounds good. I think your best bet, if you're a vinyl collector, is to get the original Columbias, at least if you're American, get the Columbias. They sound like the real thing. The original Columbia CDs from the 80s are all right. I think they're the best we probably have. I'm sorry that they're the best we have, but I think they are. I think that the Ryko disc reissues were very digital sounding. You can hear noise reduction and a bit of excessive EQ. And then the Rhino reissues are competing in the loudness wars, I'm afraid. Oh. So they're a bit loud. And then you get the Universals, which I think are roughly the same mastering as the Rhinos, if not the exact same mastering, at least the same approach. So also loudness war casualties. And then finally, I would mention that For Armed Forces, Demon slash Fiend released a very good reissue of Armed Forces in 1984, LP reissue, that sounds quite good. And if you can't get a hold of the original, that's your best bet. And it's the British track sequence. And beyond that, there are the Mobile Fidelities, which are high-priced novelties, I think. Sometimes Mobile Fidelity is amazing. Sometimes it's a revelation. I have not been blown away by their Elvis Costellos. I think you do just as well to get the Columbia originals. Yeah, I pulled one from 2002. Yeah, that's the Rhino Loudness War Casualty. Okay, that, so that's the one I was listening to. It also had just endless bonus tracks, which is, you yes. know, I kind of wanted to get a a sense of the other stuff that was hanging around at the time. Yeah, the bonus tracks are good, and the liner notes are interesting. Different set of liner notes. So he did a whole set of liner notes for the 93 Ryko discs, and then a whole second set of liner notes for the Rhinos. I think the Rhino liner notes were reprinted in the Universals. I think Universal just bought the Rhino reissues. I think that's what happened. I am curious why a reissue got drafted into the Loudness Wars, because like, Happened all the time in 2002. Are you kidding? 
I, I mean, maybe it was just the style. It was. Same with the Talking Heads reissues came out around that time. And they too are terrible casualties. Go back to the sires from the 80s, to the CDs from the 80s, if you want them. Yeah. yeah, I guess, I don't know, I just poisoned the well, I suppose, then, because when I'm thinking of that type of approach, I'm thinking of like people trying to get louder on the radio. The reissues were subject to it, especially Rhino. The Rhino Chicago reissues are loudness were. Wild. Even the Billy Joels in the late, <laughs> I could go on and on. Like, they want the original <laughs> Billy Joels, not the Ted Jensen ones. And Ted Jensen's a good engineer. He did new, actually, but you don't want those. Anyway, that's enough for the audio creeps in the audience. But <laughs> the audio creeps. All right, well, audio we're creeps. audio creeps, you know? We're worried about, <laughs> oh, the sibilance is a bit too distorted on this one, you know? Oh, creeps. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Creeps welcome is our new tagline <laughs> very for the show. Very creeps, much welcome. Creeps here. welcome. Welcome here. You mentioned the covers. Uh, we get that wonderful painted elephant cover for the UK version. It was painted by an artist named Tom Pogson. And then for the American release, there's an abstract art version of the cover painted by Barney Bubbles. Now, Barney, funnily enough, also did artwork for the single I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass by Nick Lowe. And as it turns out, old Barney did some of the artwork for Brinsley Schwartz and the Flaming Groovies and Iggy Pop and Devo and Wang Chung and Depeche Mode. So this dude, Ian Dury, this guy was busy in the late 70s and throughout the 80s. And then he kind of drops off like sharply after that point. But dude was doing a lot of album artwork. Performance credits on this album are, of course, to Elvis and the Attractions. So you get Bruce Thomas, Elvis on guitar, Pete Thomas, who also played drums with Nick Lowe, and of all people, Squeeze, uh, which I thought was interesting. Elvis has a history with Squeeze as well. He actually sings backing vocals on Tempted by the Fruit of Another by Squeeze. <laughs> Well, Elvis wrote Boy with a Problem on Imperial Bedroom with Chris Difford, also of Squeeze. Yeah. So So much squeezing. So many connections. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, and then Steve Naive, which is really funny, I assume is a stage name. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's very good. Uh, Chris, I know you're not a stranger to this program, but it seems to take everyone else by surprise. So why don't you come with me over to the bullet corner? I'm going to summarize the album. Well, I know enough now to know about the bullet corner, but I didn't bring my own bullets. Good morning. I'm going to be your instructor. Okay, I know you're anxious to jump right in. (laughs) Paul's bullet corner the portion of the show where I summarize the album in weird poetry, and I have four bullets for this album. Four. Count them. Uh, Let's start here with bullet number one. Your high school chemistry professor has been arrested, but it was for a really cool crime. (laughs) He was distributing acid for the Grateful Dead. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's not the creepy kind of arrested. It's the arrested where you're like, yeah. (laughs) Wow, he was cooler than I thought. That's my first bullet. Second bullet. The bright constellation in the night sky that looks like a dagger and might actually fall to earth and kill you. So you're saying something might be hiding underneath that beautiful tune. It might. It might. Bullet point number three. 
the feudal infinity of Pi, an endless catalog which will never fully smooth the circle. Now, is that relating to what I said earlier about the, the themes being sloppy and if you zoom out, you see a pattern or is that what that's about? Well, I guess, I, well, with that one for me, it's like, I'm fascinated by the concept of Pi, right? Is like the idea that we're never going to get to all of the digits mm-hmm. of pi right because every step is really a half step and you'll never actually reach it's like infinity and i find that so interesting it's and compelling rational though which is what's more fun right well it's yeah and it's all in an attempt to smooth the circle and so what I find interesting about Elvis Costello is this dude has an infinite number of songs, <laughs> just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these fucking things. And he's never going to smooth the circle. It never gets there. And I don't think Elvis is, Elvis is never going to be smooth. The way I think of it is you're not going to get a, a neat and tidy message from an Elvis Costello song. It's never going to no. approach like clearly making its point. It's going to yeah, hint at it in, infinitely. Yeah, I like that. Well, good. Anyway, my last one here is stupid. It's the White Cliffs of Declan. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because he's white and rocky and sharp, and if you fall on it, it'll kill you, but it looks nice. Anyway, let's move on to the album, shall we? Diving in. (laughs) Let's do it. Track number one. So I guess if I'm honest about it, the first time I ever heard Accidents Will Happen would be Elliot's brother singing it in E.T. Oh, wow. Elliot's brother comes into the house in E.T. and he's singing Accidents Will Happen while he's looking through the refrigerator. Did uh, Elvis get a piece of that, you think? I bet he did. It's probably kept him sustained through much of the 80s. Probably that's all you need is for your song to be sung in a Steven Spielberg movie, especially E.T. that one. Yeah. Uh, But that, I didn't know it at the time. I was much more concerned with the John Williams score, but uh, apparently I heard that song quoted in that movie. It it amazed me when I, years ago, I was watching E.T. and I was like, is that? Holy shit. They're trying to make that kid look hip in 1982 by singing a 1978 <laughs> Elvis Costello song. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's good. He's punk rock. It's fine. Um, so this, is it punk rock? His attitude is. It's not punk rock. It's new wave, isn't it? But his attitude is punk rock. Yeah. I think. Yeah. But if you put this next to Never Mind the Bullocks. Well, sure. Or The Clash. But if you put it next to Talking Heads 77, which Elvis says he was influenced by, then it makes perfect sense. But I never saw Talking Heads as punk, no matter how much people said they were. To me, they were always new way. To me, Talking Heads always had a little bit more to do with early Duran Duran than it ever had to do with Sex Pistols. Wow. The first Duran Duran album, although very heavy on synthesizers, was seen as, you know, it was the new wave album. And it was bound up in some ways with the punk aesthetic. 
It's weird to ponder, but I think it's true. And I think if you, you think of early Duran Duran, and then you mix that up with Elvis Costello and mix that up with Sex Pistols, now you're getting the, the feeling for what's going on here. Interesting that you put it that way. I've never heard it quite described in that way. From my vantage point, I think of punk rock and new wave it, much in the same way I think about indie rock and indie hip hop at the top of the 2000s. And I almost see them as cousins. Mm -hmm. They both seem to be stemming from a frustration or from a rejection of the 70s in a way, <laughs> like this grim decade. It seems to be like a, an attempt to break free. Well, it has something to do with rejecting corporate rock, right? Whatever the hell corporate rock is. I mean, that's Led Zeppelin, isn't it? Isn't that yes? Isn't that corporate the arena? Rock? Yeah, sticks. Yeah, yeah. The, I guess what they perceived as the arena rockers and like Poison later on and, and all those bands and Motley Crue and stuff. With punk, they wanted to break free by burning it all down. And with New Wave, they wanted to break free by almost doing what ELO did and picking up the bits of the past that they liked and building on them. Yes. And I like both for different reasons. I think I gravitate more toward new wave. Me too. Just because I, it's more of like a, it's almost like the Lennon and McCartney. <laughs> like they're both got those differing perspectives. One is sort of has that bit of a nostalgia, saccharine nostalgia, just on the, on the back end. New wave through about 83 does expand far enough to include like early orchestral maneuvers in the dark and early ABC lexicon of love is considered new wave. It's a big, like lavish production. It's got some funk in it. It's like British funk and it's not corporate rock. It's kind of rejecting corporate rock, but it sure isn't DIY either. It's got brass and strings and it's kind of very radio friendly. By 1983, I think new wave breaks, right? That's, it's turned into true Duran Duran, not early Duran Duran, full Duran Duran, right? But in these early days, you know, Blondie, right? Blondie is bound up with New Wave, right? Well, Blondie and Duran Duran are not so, like, the first Duran Duran album, they're not that different. Blondie and early OMD, not that different. Blondie's one of those groups, I feel like, that straddles the line yes. a bit between punk and New Wave. Because, you know, when Blondie first came out, and I, I'm not that versed in early Blondie, but, like, my dad saw you know, them at CBGB's mm. and they're playing there with the Ramones and stuff. And so you get that. I mean, there's this, there's a camaraderie there and that's why I kind of see them as, as just as cousins. They're, you know, they're, they're akin at a, at a base. There's an agreement there that rock or music rather was broken and they're here to fix it. They just disagreed about how to fix it, I think. And I think there's a sense of, can we just be a self-contained band that isn't an arena act that isn't, you know, supported by an orchestra all the time. Like, can we just be a self-contained, you know, DIY again, because you listen to early talking heads and you can call it DIY, but it's pretty sophisticated. Yeah. You know, those first two talking heads albums are, doesn't sound like the clash. Right. I love that. So that was something that was an acquired taste. I sort of had to come around to that later in life, but, uh, I really have fallen in love with David Byrne, and, and he did a wonderful album with one of my favorite artists, St. Vincent. They did Saint a record Vincent. Oh, that's a great album they did together. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so good. She was on Saturday Night Live last night, and she was excellent, I would imagine. I, oh, I, uh, great. I would great. Imagine. I didn't know. Anyway, accidents will happen. So we're talking about a rejection of that arena rock. And in fact, making 
those arena rockers kind of look very not cool mm-hmm. <laughs> by <Yes. laughs> by being this unique thing that did not seem to be wrapped up or care about the trappings of hair guitars and things you know the spinal tappiness of it all it was just not what they were after (laughs) a certain kind of virtuosic playing because god God knows on this year's model you hear virtuosity but there's a certain kind of showy virtuosity in yes and in jimmy page you know right like the ripping guitar solo and the really showy stuff and there's a kind of a no we're not doing that you know we're too cool for that like you you will observe our virtuosity through our tightness right you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you'll yeah it's not yeah i guess i never really thought of it like that yeah jimmy page very much looks like a golden god up there right? and he's telling you with that big bow and stuff wow yeah. look at me he's making a show of it but when you hear like the knack that sounds <laughs> super fucking tight but you also don't have them out there with a bow they get back in uniforms again yeah. I mean, a lot of this stuff, that's what I found so interesting. They're back in suits. Mm. Elvis Costello is back in a suit like he's yeah. a freaking beetle. And so. Or a, a software programmer. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he's kind of wearing right. his work clothes, I think. <laughs> the bass playing on this whole album is mind blowing to me. It is, the, to me, it's the highlight of the whole record. And obviously, the record lives yeah. and dies by the songs, but. I guess Bruce Thomas is a is a touchy topic with Elvis, but oh really? Tell me why? Oh, yeah, they hate, well they hate each other. Yeah. Oh God, really? No. Oh no, they hate each other. Yeah, I mean you notice Pete Thomas still plays. He's in the Imposters. Yeah. Oh okay. Bruce Thomas that went away a long time ago. The listeners can look that up, but there's a song called "You Bowed Down" mm-hmm. from All This Useless Beauty, and the attractions had gotten back together, including Bruce Thomas, which was kind of a big thing. Right. Elvis is going to work with Bruce Thomas. But then they went on the Tonight Show and they sang You Bowed Down. And instead of singing the chorus, he sang, I should never have walked back over the bridge I burned, which is way too many syllables for the chorus. And what he was referring to is working with Bruce Thomas again. Oh, my God. He pulled a radio radio right there with the bassist on stage. He basically badmouthed the bass. Yeah, no, this is... Damn. I should never have walked back over the bridge I burned. So we're done with Bruce Thomas now. Holy cow. Uh, So that's a whole thing. Listeners can look that up. uh, Well, I guess it doesn't surprise me, really. (laughs) It doesn't matter in terms of what you're saying about the bass playing. Yes, he's an amazing bassist. I couldn't help... I'm not one of those people that zeroes in on one instrument on a record, especially when you're only hearing it a couple times. You know, you're letting those songs kind of, as Ryan used to say, carve new grooves into your brain when you're listening to a new album for... An album that is new to you for the first few times. But I couldn't help but just marvel at it. I couldn't help but just be like, oh my God, what would this song be without those bass lines? It's just... I mean, listen to the bass playing on Lipstick Vogue from this year's model. It's unreal. But I actually think some of Bruce Thomas's best bass playing is on Blood and Chocolate from 86, which was kind of the end of the attractions for a while. Well, wow. until until 96, I guess. 
Well, so this is one of those songs that kind of took me by surprise overall in that it sounded a little soft to my ear. It sounded a little adult contemporary in its presentation. And I... <laughs> adult contemporary? I don't know what... Look, I may be off base with that. Just, you mean like Andrew Gold? Well, I, to my ear, it just... Thank you for being a friend. <laughs> Well, but it's melodic like those songs, isn't it? Yeah. And I don't know yeah. why, if I can even put a fine point on it or what I was expecting. I guess just when I'm hearing, especially early Elvis Costello, I guess my ear just goes right to, is this pump it up or is is it not pump it up? <laughs> and where in relation to pump it up is it? Okay. Yeah. Because pump it up to me is an atypical Elvis song. It's straight rock. Yeah, the beat and pump it up or straight rock. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to say that to be insulting to the song at, at all. It just took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting this sound when I put on this record. So you're hearing this twisty turny melody, and yeah. you're hearing chord changes that don't always go where you thought they were going to go. They yep. go to another key. You know? Yeah. yeah. So you're you're hearing something more like the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and I'm yeah. hearing Beatles all over this album. We'll get oh, to yeah. some of those later. Oh, but... yes. There are some big ones, obvious <laughs> ones. We'll talk about Party Girl when we get to it. But, um, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. When I... <laughs> Why don't you just quote Abbey Road? Yeah. I was on a run, and I think I said aloud to no one in particular, this is, this is, this is, done. they did this, Elvis. They did this one. <laughs> Uh, so I'm not going to get too much into the, the origins of these songs necessarily, but this one, I just will touch on it real quick. It goes back to a, I guess, like a fleeting encounter, possibly fleeting romantic encounter with a cab driver where he was arguing with her over what they were going to play on the radio. She wanted to hear Pink Floyd and he wanted to hear Freddie Fender or something. And I guess it was going to be this romantic thing. And then it, it wasn't, it ended in this argument. And so she dropped him back at his um, hotel room and he wrote the song that night with uh, Steve on piano. And I just thought that was kind of interesting, you know? It's like, so can we talk about the fact that it started as a ballad? Have you heard the ballad version? Uh, no, I haven't heard the ballad okay, version. Okay. So it started with him being inspired by anyone who had a heart by Burt Bacharach, the People know it from the Dion Warwick version from 64, I guess. Elvis being, of course, a huge Bacharach fan. More evidence that he's not a real punk rock person. <laughs> he's loves, he loves Bacharach and right, David. Right, right. Yeah, he's not like quite coming from there. And so he had written this gorgeous ballad. And there is a ballad version. You can hear it on the extra tracks, I think, for the Rhino version that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. That's how it originated. And years later, he came up with his own orchestral arrangement of it that is more similar to the ballad version. So it did start out as an attempt to be an anyone who had a heart style ballad, but he admits, I think it's in the liner notes for the Rhino, he admits that he just didn't know how to write a song like that. Mm. He just didn't have the knowledge at 24 to write that kind of song. So it turned into this awkward ballad that eventually became this up-tempo thing. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. It was a single. It peaked at number 28 in the UK 
and only hit number 101 in the Billboard charts at the time. That was enough to get in, into E.T., though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I think I had read somewhere that this album was meant to be the album that broke him in America and then didn't, but I don't mm. know what wound up being the thing that did break him. Nothing ever broke him. Yeah. He never broke in America. Not really. It never happened. I mean, every day I write the book was the closest thing, like number 39 or something. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, King of America and Blood and Chocolate, they weren't selling at all. A Spike was kind of the big hit, though, at that time, wasn't it? I mean, comparatively, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, senior service, junior dissatisfaction. So this one here is more my speed. I love this song. It's weird and bouncy from the top. It almost has a police-esque vibe to it. Elvis and the police are sort of happening around the same time. Makes me wonder how many of these new wave artists were borrowing from each other or learning from each other or being inspired by each other. But man, I love this song. Really, really nice track. If Accidents Will Happen was not quite hardcore enough for you, I mean, surely this is there, right? This one hooked me, yep. Much more than Accidents Will Happen. This one got me. I want to chop off your head and watch it roll into the basket. (laughs) If you should drop dead tonight, then they won't have to ask me twice. I will take your job in a heartbeat. So this is like a brutal like view of the sort of quasi military hierarchy of corporate structure. Yeah. It's interesting how he takes all of that with that very sarcastic, droll, dry, nasty humor of his (laughs) and really just eviscerates it. For the true nerds in the audience, this is kind of like the Sith Actually, sure. this is a junior, this is an underling who's looking to take his boss's job violently if necessary. <laughs> it's a bit of a precursor of American Psycho too, perhaps too, yeah, you know, like sure. it's this view of the corporate world that says I'm working my way up. And if that means pushing you out of the way, well, I want to chop off your head and watch it roll into the basket. Yeah. Ah, it's like, and again, it goes with that warfare theme of the album. This is just warfare in a very white collar sort of way, but it's a similar kind of emotion to actual warfare where it's that cutthroat, my interests override your interests. You know, it's really fucked up. And it's funny. I think there was a Ben Fold song that deals with this too, that Ryan and I had talked about. I don't know. There's something to me that's really comforting when musicians take aim at corporate life because mm. my instinct is to always be like, well, I'm thankful to have a job. Well, you know, I can't, I can't <laughs> complain about this because I have a job and people don't have jobs and I'm happy. But like when you think about these weird rituals we go through at these jobs, they are kind of fucked up and yeah. sometimes awful, you know, awful experiences in that corporate world. And I always take a comfort when musicians or artists – kind of point that out. And this is one of those examples. There's a line I pluck from here. They took me in the office and they told me very carefully the way I could benefit from death and disability. 
death and disability. Yeah. Which is just <laughs> the most hilarious way to talk about open enrollment yeah. that I've ever heard. <laughs> just really Isn't that good. wonderful? Also, this ability that he has to turn a cliche on its head, it's the death that's worse than fate. Like I remember hearing that, you know, we're talking early on in my life and hearing that and loving that this is the standard in these lyrics. The standard is so high, we're not going to have throwaway lines. Yeah. Every line is going to have something. And here's one where I've taken an old-fashioned cliche and I've turned it around backwards and it means even more in this context. A beautiful track, a great track too as well. You know, if you're being soothed into the record, not soothed, but if you're like being welcomed into the record, I should say, by accidents will happen. This is a great like smack in the face, like, nah, this is what this record is kind of thing uh, from Elvis, which I, I appreciate. I don't have too much more to say about senior service. We move on here to Oliver's Army. have to say, and I promise not to do this throughout the record because I hate when people do this, but I'm going to do it okay. anyway. Do it. This one was distractingly similar to a song by Bruce Springsteen called Out in the Street. That's on the river. So that's an album that I don't know well enough. So I know it, but not well enough. Now, when I'm hearing this, I'm going, is Elvis Costello a Bruce Springsteen fan? Like, because I was well, also hearing- The river is is after this. The so river that's 80, when I- But it was kind of recorded in 79. I so guess. that's when I realized, no, the river came after this. They were yes. contemporaries of one another. If anything, Bruce heard this- so I don't know if that's true. I think that it was maybe just symptomatic of like, sometimes people just come up with similar sounding stuff. When you hear the songs, there's, there's an eerie similarity to it actually. Um, yeah. But I just found that to be so interesting because the last thing I was expecting to hear on this record was something that reminded me of Bruce Springsteen. This is the last thing I was expecting. I, I just, I don't know what I was expecting going into this. I think I was just expecting a dude like flipping everybody off at every turn. And that's not what I got. This year's model is that. <laughs> well, sure. So <laughs> but, I, I'm, but this isn't, I'm a big Bruce fan, but I also understand that Bruce kind of sometimes takes those rose tinted goggles to nostalgia in a way that is a bit, I don't want to say juvenile, but sometimes I get a bit of a teenager vibe from Bruce Springsteen's songs. Okay. And I was starting to get a bit of that on here. And I don't know, I just- Really? On Oliver's Army? Not on Oliver's Army, but I guess, I don't know, my brain was just not computing that there could be similar sounds between those two, because I'm just not thinking of them as the same kind of artist. You're throwing something at me that I didn't see coming at all. I, I was thinking a little bit about the Dancing Queen- similarity right. in the piano part. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And of course, I love Dancing Queen and I think Dancing Queen is deep. I think it's a heavy, deep song. So- I'm an ABBA he, super fan. Oh, well, yeah, we yeah. can talk about that uh, at some point. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
Well, ABBA's something I've gotten to know with a bit more intimacy in maybe the last four or five years. And I'm just really impressed. And so there's no shame from my point of view in Elvis like hearing that and being moved by it and saying, can we capture some of that grandeur to Steve Naive, who knows exactly what to do? Well, yeah. So let me, I'll read this from Uncut Magazine along those lines. Costello was going to dump the song, Oliver's Army, when they first started recording it. But Niccolo recalls, quote, we went through it all afternoon and it just wasn't happening at all. Elvis didn't like it and he was getting more and more shirty. I could see why. I thought it was a really good track, but it did sound very obviously poppy. Maybe that was the problem for him. Anyway, something about it was getting up his nose, and I'd started making overtures about this. Lowe continues, Well, all is not lost, Elvis. I can take this stuff off your hands any time. That was really biting. Out of the blue, Steve Naive said, What about if I do a sort of ABBA piano part on it? Complete silence. We knew their records were good, but no one wanted to own up to it. So Elvis says, let's try it. I didn't think this was going to disturb my plan to get the track for myself. Naive did the piano part, and suddenly the thing went from black and white to fireworks. Yeah. I don't think it's quite the first take that you hear on the finished record, but the effect was instantaneous. It gave the record an unbelievable sound and spirit. I thought it was very good before, but when the piano went on, I saw my nefarious scheme going out the window. (laughs) I didn't mind too much (laughs) because it was such a great cut. And so Elvis had the massive hit with it, and I didn't. I just love that. (laughs) How about that? It perhaps reminded me at the time of early Beatles more Mm. than anything else. Like, you know, not early, early, but, you know, that 64 period, 64 to 65 period, where the melodies are just so juicy and they... Go where you expect, but with a detour. And I remember hearing that in the melody for Oliver's Army and thinking, wow, you went there. That's such a melody. It's such a melody. And so being very impressed with it melodically and the lyrics sounding, I think as one of the reviewers said, maybe we'll get to some press later, I don't know, but one of the reviewers said something about the lyrics giving a sound to the music. The stuff he was talking about had a sound. It's a like a nice bracing contrast yeah. between the beautiful melody you hear unfolding and the obviously naughty and sort of obviously angry lyrics that you hear, you know, coming out of the singer's mouth. I don't know. The sounds of the words combined with the beauty of the music is a very arresting thing. And I guess we touched on it earlier, you know, with the quote that I read that it's accessible and commercial in its own way. But if you listen to it, wow, it's pretty dark. It's yeah. a song about imperialism. Yeah. And I guess he wrote it in response to seeing young soldiers carrying big guns around the conflict that was going on between England and Ireland at the time. Which goes back to Oliver, which is the 1649 Oliver Cromwell, basically subjugation of Ireland to England at that yeah. time. But you look through here and you just see... You don't have to have the lyrics in front of you or be thinking that hard to hear. Checkpoint Charlie, Hong Kong is up for grab. London is full of Arabs, Palestine, Chinese line, Mr. Churchill's ear, Johannesburg. And by the way, what a great rhyme. If you're out of luck or out of work, we could send you to Johannesburg. Yeah. 
I mean, of all the rhymes to come up with for out of work, Johannesburg. (laughs) Holy cow. Like, this is the kind of stuff that even if I didn't fully understand what was going on, I heard someone rhyme work with Johannesburg and just thought, well, this is amazing. It's just one of these songs that it highlights the sadness, especially coming out of somebody who is, what, 24, right? He's 24-ish. Yeah. And he's looking at kids his own age. And sometimes younger. I mean, he's talking about soldiers that are plucked right out of high school. You know, so you're talking about 16 years old. 16-year-old kids have no business walking around with an AK-47. I mean, they just don't. Or whatever it was. It's the idea that Elvis is king in on here, which is that nations take advantage of people that have nowhere else to go but the army. Hmm. A lot of artists have dealt with this subject matter. I think Elvis does it particularly well. And it's actually even more ironic that he was recognized for his achievements by the British government. Cause I think he's, I don't know what OBE is. I don't know if it's night or not, but it's something important. And so clearly all this subversion seems order to have, of the British empire. Right? There you go. So, yeah. uh, you know, I guess they forgave him <laughs> for all this stuff, but I don't know. I find his, even his, musings which have been mused by others particularly insightful and um, Mm. so anyway that this song is no different that brings us to track four here big boys think of all the tracks on the record this one struck me the most upon first listen like i'm getting a vibe for what this record is it's got more of a bite to it and i think that's what i kind of appreciated about it the way he says everything is so provocative <laughs> yeah yeah this phrasing yeah. his phrasing is really good and I, I should say this whole album sounds strikingly modern when you're listening to this thing. Doesn't it? To me, it sounds vital and fresh. It really holds up. You know, I was going to say that uh, My Aim is True sounds very old, and it sounded old to me when I first heard it. You know, I, I mentioned that I got this album and My Aim is True at the same time. And to me, My Aim is True sounded like this, what we used to call in North Carolina, beach music. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> we used to call it beach music. It was 60s. It was just 60s R&B, yeah. you know, kind of like mellow 60s R&B and people would dance to it and stuff. It was beach music, right? It sounded like that a little bit. It sounded like old fashioned. It sounded very 60s is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And Armed Forces, by comparison, it sounded modern in, you know, hearing it for the first time in 1987. It sounds pretty modern today. I mean, it just holds up as... I mean, what would you change? Right. What's tropey about it? Yeah. Where are the 70s tropes here? I think what that explains a lot about his longevity as an artist. You know, it's always hard to tell when somebody's going to really have that staying power. And one of the litmus tests is, are you producing new songs with the same quality and abundance as you were your first batch of songs. Like that's the first thing. And of course he passes that test with flying colors. Some might say too much, Um, but the second one is like, yeah, I mean, are you transcending the time that you're performing it in? 
And he absolutely does. The same what the Beatles did. The Beatles did the same exact thing. There's a cryptic quality to a lot of Elvis's lyrics, but there's a mysterious quality to some of these early lyrics. You oh, know? yeah. There's just something so... I was caught in the suction by a face like a truncheon. I was down upon one knee stroking her vanity. It's very... Mis- <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's just cryptic enough to be very... Well, everything is so provocative. Yeah, right. It's very provocative. <laughs> That's right. Like it's, there's something going on here and it sounds urgent and intense. So Big Boys, this is a song about, let's say, the speaker's contempt for a guy who's being crushed by a woman. Am mm. I right about that? You're trying to be like, you know, the cool guys who can just have one night stands, but you're actually totally hung up on this person. Because you go silly if she's willing, trying so hard to be like the big boys. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that is an interpretation I had not considered. I saw it more as a sympathetic view in the sense of, and maybe I just wasn't studying the lyrics closely enough, but when I was- Look at the contempt, worrying about your physical fitness. Tell me how you got this sickness. (laughs) Right. Well, I guess I was seeing it more as the character who's singing- expressing a disdain for the one night stand people by saying that actually on the inside, you're this person. But I guess what you're saying is Elvis is saying on the inside, you're kind of henpecked. You're being taken for a ride. Or you're, you're exactly being Yes. He, and he's showing contempt for this guy. So I did not interpret it as that upon the first listen. I think I have to go back again and listen to it again. I, I thought it was, it was more of a disavowing of the, hey, you claim you're the party boy. Let me read this verse again. Yeah. I shall walk out of this place. I shall walk out on you because you go silly if she's willing, trying so hard to be like the big boys. So you take her to the pictures, trying to become a fixture, inch by inch, trying to reach her all the way through second feature, worrying about your physical fitness. Tell me how you got this sickness <laughs> yeah right okay. sure he yeah. hates this guy whoever he's talking to he hates him that's probably himself man <laughs> i think because he was married maybe. at this time wasn't it maybe wasn't I, he no i think the marriage was i know because this is when baby buell like started showing up so i think mm-hmm. he's already finished with his marriage at this time well anyway it's apologies to listeners for not knowing the yeah. ins and outs of the divorce dates and <laughs> I uh, well yeah I mean if this was Beatles I would if this be were down Paul your McCartney th- I would know it right? I know yeah. I'd be down your throat like, well actually yeah. um, the exact date was right. so this one I described when I was listening to it as anthemic evil okay it just there did feel like there was an ominous sort of vaguely evil presence and it may have simply been like that kick drum pounding during the verses and that bass just like thumping through the track and this was another one where i was like holy shit this bass is really good (laughs) you know so this is where the charges of misogyny start to come in you know maybe we should address it elvis on these first three or four albums was accused of misogyny yeah now the way i see it elvis is as we've discussed a young man in his early 20s and it's the late 70s so mores are different and he's young Let's, mm-hmm. let's put those together. But it seems to me that he's talking about any number of dysfunctional relationship situations. Yeah. And he's a heterosexual male, so he finds himself singing about women a lot who are treating him badly or who treat men badly. Just as if you look at the late 70s, you'll find many female singers talking about men who treat women badly. 
So I think it's just him going with the perspective he has. And the thing about Armed Forces as his third album is that he's already showing some willingness to blame himself, as we see on some of these tracks. He's blaming himself and he's blaming the guy more. And that's what's interesting about this is that he's, yes, there's contempt for a male who falls in thrall to a a manipulative woman, but he's not really blaming the woman, is he? He's kind of blaming the man right. in this song. Big boys. Right. We're looking at it through a modern lens. And yeah, it's fair, to, it's fair to deal with. I guess where I come down on that is that, like you said, 24. Look, those thoughts are not all pure. Those thoughts are not going to be all pure. And what I appreciate about artists like Elvis, I mean, people have said the same thing about the Beatles, even. I mean, God, run for your life, please. I guess what I would say is, yeah, you know, chauvinism is is not uh, is not good at all. Uh, I consider myself to be a feminist, and I listen to this not through the ear of, hey, this guy should know better, but more of like, you know, people have feelings. <laughs> people have sometimes they have ugly feelings. They have feelings from the perspective they have. If you're a heterosexual male and you want to write about dysfunctional relationships and you want to write what you know, what do you have? Oh, right. Yeah. You I mean, have women. Again, 24, for God's sake. I mean, when <laughs> this thinking yeah. about that age, I'm like, no one has any business putting to record. Yeah. I'm, and look, we're both white guys and stuff like all the all of that aside for the moment just like listen we have a certain perspective we have a certain privilege it is what it is i would say it doesn't really strike me as anything more than a teenagery kind of outlook or or a young man sort of outlook and you know what people have those thoughts and elvis is putting those thoughts to paper and i don't know he's doing a really good job of communicating what it is to feel those things all of it feels dangerous. All of it feels dangerous. And good. You know what? Rock and roll should be a bit dangerous, shouldn't it? These lyrics feel dangerous, right? It's about war. It's called fucking armed forces. <laughs> green shirt. Who wears green shirts? I love this goddamn song. You can please yourself, but somebody's gonna get it. Better send the I love this song. This is one of my favorite. This turned it from hearing it for the first time live. This went to be like one of my favorite songs of all time. I just, when I heard this, I was like, oh my God, just that phrasing. You were talking about it earlier. So he says, because somewhere down in the Quisling Clinic, there's a shorthand typist taking seconds over minutes. Now that over minutes. couplet, like, oh my God. God, that is so. There is the phrasing so there, much in there. And what does it mean to take seconds over minutes? I get the feeling she's having, she's eating leisurely as she takes minutes. Taking oh my seconds God, yeah. over minutes. That's probably what maybe. that means. Yeah. I mean, because that's, yeah, that's what that, that's called. But He has this amazing quote about this Quisling Clinic. So this is on the liner notes for the 2002. Every shop front or nightclub sign seemed like a line from a song. In some cases, that was just what they became. Wasn't there likely to be something dastardly going on in any place called the Quisling Clinic? (laughs) It was just up the road from our hotel. I didn't know much, but I knew a little history. 
Quisling was the name of the Norwegian fascist leader who betrayed the country in the Second World War. An entire Boys from Brazil-style fantasy could unravel from such a chance encounter. Wow. The Quisling Clinic was a place up the road from their hotel, it turns out. Amazing. But that's exactly what you want in this song. Yeah. Scribbled in one of his various notebooks, which he'd hurl at Paul McCartney later. Yeah, that's right. And Paul was like, Jesus, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just, I don't know, just, it's almost proto-hip-hop, like the way he's the way he's phrasing these lyrics when he's talking. Cause, and, and that's what grabbed me about it. That's what makes it sound so modern, because it makes it seem like he's pulling from these other influences. But hip-hop wasn't really fully formed in 1978 and, you know, the top of 1979, it was being born. Barely, yeah. No, Elvis wouldn't have known about hip hop or but hearing rap, him or say not rip hop, but rap. He wouldn't have known about rap, really. Yeah, but he would have known about vaudeville. He would have known about music hall, and that's what he's doing when he does this kind of patter stuff. It's music hall. You yeah. shine all your buttons on your yeah. So he does. I love the so the. I don't know if you'd call it a chorus. Probably a chorus. Maybe you would know. Yeah, no, it's close enough. Yeah, but you tease and you flirt. So he takes the pause there. He takes that little step. Okay, but you tease, beat, and you flirt, beat, and you shine all the buttons on your... So he's almost going more... So almost the chorus. He's going faster tempo as cramming more lyrics into the thing as he goes. So you tease, and you flirt, and you shine all the buttons on your green shirt. You can please yourself, but somebody's going to get it. And then that, that sharp gonna get it and then it cuts off almost like a like a bad punch in like it just slaps like shut the door slams on the lyric and then you get that guitar and it's just like oh my god fuck yes so i'm hearing that live from an old man who wrote this song when he was 24 this amazing line who put these fingerprints on my imagination that's another one i pulled what a disastrous sentiment Uh, from the whole album i think that's my favorite lyric from the whole album i mean it's just amazing and those those little the snare and the the little synth frills i mean actually the synth frills i like them i feel like they may actually even be a step too far because actually is is interesting after i heard this song for the first time live i went home and tried to find it and the thing i found first and didn't realize was i found the demo that elvis recorded for this year's model so this was a this year's model holdover and he did it on acoustic guitar there's a demo and so when you hear the acoustic demo, it's just as good as the finished version. Just as good. It's like listening to, uh, and you must have heard these, the um, when George does the run-through of All Things Must Pass for Phil Spector on acoustic guitar. Right. You hear those and you're like, oh, this is just as good, if not better than the album. <laughs> Brian Wilson doing the piano version of Surf's, Surf's Up. Up. Yeah. yeah. That's a great one. Oh, I like that more than the finished version. I think yeah. it is, it sounds more like a song. When he oh, does it, so gorgeous. When he it's does so it, so haunting piano. and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's an all time thing. I mean, Surf's Up is just next level. But anyway, I think this yeah. track is next level. It's it's my favorite on the album. Maybe my favorite of Elvis's. Green shirt. Really? Yeah, <laughs> I just Gosh. love. It. I don't know something about this this track really grabs me. Can I say what my favorite Elvis Costello song is? Is it Pads, Paws, and Claws? It's Crimes of Paris <laughs> from Blood and Chocolate. Ooh. So everybody, go look that up. Well, I'll play a little drop of that here. Thought it was you with your optimist view of the clock And how it's always another day Just after 12 o'clock strikes It's a fucked up song, and who knows what it's about. <laughs> Should we talk about Party Girl? <laughs> 
Let's talk about Party Girl. Now, I think this is what it's like to be in a relationship with someone who is more promiscuous than you are and you've accepted it and try, you're trying to adjust to it. I think that's what this is. And that, to me, is what was giving me Bruce vibes. Again, okay. I've got the Bruce vibes here because that's subject matter that Bruce kind of deals with. He's the wounded... And that's what strikes me as juvenile about Bruce stuff. He's always the wounded boy, right? He's always the okay. one that God did wrong or whatever. And so maybe that's what I'm coming at it with. But this is another track where it's just, I love the lushness of it. I love the, just there's those big cymbal crashes and that bass is on that fire whole, again. like giant chunk of Abbey Road that's in it. And then the big chunk <laughs> of Abbey Road. <laughs> So first I'm thinking... What's up with that? First I'm thinking, hey Jude, because he's doing that like, yeah, you know, he's doing that hey Jude ending kind of McCartney vocal thing. No, it's Abbey Road. Yeah, yeah. no, I. And that, that's when I realized I've heard this before. <laughs> it's like Elvis. Oh, you, yeah. <laughs> All right. It's coming up any second. <laughs> uh, Elvis. The Beatles done did that one. I Look. I like it though. I mean, I love it. It's a it's a great song. It's a painful song. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to put a little syringe of Beatles in something, it may as well be an Elvis Costello album. You know, like, let's just have some fun here. It's Elvis fine. knows what he's doing. Yeah. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. It's not like the dude never wrote an original song. Like, that is one thing, you know, if you don't know how to do anything else other than Beatles. But I don't know. He almost deploys it. I don't know for what reason, but he kind of, it seems purposeful, the deployment of that. Well, there's the mystery of the, of the refrain, I can give you anything but time. Give yeah. you anything but time. What does that exactly mean? I've seen a few different interpretations of it. It seems as if the song is about just giving in to the fact that she is promiscuous and that he would be willing to put up with that. That seems to be what the song is about. Hmm. I can give you anything but times. Maybe he's saying that um, he also can't reciprocate with a real relationship. I'm not sure. Or I can't give you back the time that you waste with other people. I wish I could could give that to us, but you're spending it on other people. I don't know. Hmm. He certainly emphasizes it, and there's a kind of mystery around it. Sort of like My Aim is True, where he repeats that at the end of Allison, and you're kind of forced to wonder quite what it means. Yeah. Do I have good aim, or do I have good intentions? You know? Mm -hmm. There's a drama on this one to the execution of it. And that kind of goes with that sentiment anyway. It's a bit a bit of a dramatic sentiment. But yeah, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't have too much more to say about Party Girl. I, I like the track a lot. It's a great mid-album mid track too, because it kind of keeps your... <laughs> if you're going to put Beatles stuff someplace on a record, you may as well put it in the middle to prevent the sag, right? But So as we get into Goon Squad, I mean, can we agree that green shirt does refer to an army shirt? As you dress up to go out and find someone tonight... What you're kind of doing is dressing up like a soldier and going to do the work of 
finding someone. I like that interpretation a lot. I think the, the only thing I pulled from Green Shirt in terms of what it, Elvis like trying to describe it was a he called it a paranoid song that he wrote mm-hmm. about the simplification of seductive signals, the bedroom eyes that lead to tyranny. The green shirt. You're yeah. dressed up in your uniform. Right. Yeah. yeah. So Goon Squad is also dealing uh, very overtly with military themes. Very overtly. It's one of my favorites on the album. It's really terrifying. It really captures... There was a kind of rock and roll war music that existed, I want to say, in the mid-70s. What was that crazy movie? Was it Wizards? There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten, when humanity will rise from the ashes of nuclear holocaust... You kind of look at what people thought war rock music sounded like in the 70s. This is it. By the way, this rhythm, it's the Doctor Who theme. Yeah. Yeah, it's the Doctor Who theme rhythm. Yeah, so there's something going on there. There's a militaristic feeling to the... That's a kind of a military march feeling going on there, triple yeah. time thing. And uh, it's clearly a song about someone kind of losing his humanity in the military. I like the madness to it. And maybe that's what you're describing somebody being indoctrinated and then slowly losing their mind or losing their humanity, being reduced to that soldier. Maybe that's kind of what I'm responding to there. But I, I quite like this song. And it got me interested in kind of trying to figure out what he actually meant by Goon Squad. And, you know, when I was digging around and looking some things up, yeah, it was definitely in response to the military. And I guess Goon Squad in the United States especially is a um, – it refers to a group of criminals or mercenaries. Or vigilantes. I think vigilantes. Right. Who are associated with either pro or anti-union violence, which I thought was interesting. Right. So with right. in the case of pro-union – Right. Yeah. In the, in the case of pro-union violence, a goon squad may be formed by union leaders to intimidate people and or strike breakers, things like that. So oddly enough, this is another one that gave me Bruce energy, and I couldn't quite understand why until hmm. I realized that he kind of nicked the lick from Spirits of the Night. Oh, okay. Did he? Uh, the night. It's at the very... Right. I'm, I'm thinking of Spirits of the Night. It's at the very least reminiscent of it. I'll I'll play a bit of both of those. versatility than i thought he did you know because he, he sometimes he gets up close to the mic and he's it's almost like a talky kind of singing voice and then in his element like left to his own devices i feel like he just lives in that nasally space and stuff but i actually quite like it when he belts you know and tries to really 
give it, you know, shout and get those notes out. But uh, yeah, no, I like this one. It's it again. The madness was the thing that I found compelling about this one. Busybodies, busybodies. Okay. So here's a song about promiscuity. Uh, <laughs> my favorite track opening on the entire record. I love that opening, where it just fades in. You think that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. production on this one and, and the whole album in general but especially on this one with those sharp breaks and that the rapid fire bars it just highlights for me what i love the most about this record is when niccolo brings out that bright synth pop sound <laughs> from elvis when he's down there talking about some kind of fucked up well, this shit. is real genius so you think that you have seen her when you're lying in between her <laughs> That so you could have said legs lying in between her legs. Mm. He didn't say that. He said between her. Yeah. Taking the obvious phrase and doing just a little something to it that gives it a whole other meaning. And we're also back in the corporate lamentation polls. He says in one of these lines I love, now you're ready for the merger with the company <laughs> you're part of and you do the dirty business with the latest sleeping partner. <laughs> <laughs> Just really and good. who rhymes part of with partner? That's amazing. Very good. <laughs> that is a, no, that's a great, a great verse. And it harkens back to senior service. So yeah, no, this is a, a great one. The record kind of hums along, really picks up throughout it. It doesn't, there's no sag for me in the album, which is unusual. Usually I get kind of a sag somewhere in the four, track four and five, something like that, or maybe even six, seven, but no, I don't have a low point really. Yeah, and this is another one that's really melodically beautiful and has a lot of variety going on musically. A lot of Steve Naive, interesting, like organ and piano work on this. Amazing production, as you said. This is really, he's, you know, he's doing wall of sound on a few of these. He's got a little Phil Spector, and this is one of them. This one yeah. in Party Girl, and I guess it has a timelessness, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. sound exactly like 60s or 50s or anything in particular. And you can listen to it today and not quite know where it's from, I would think. Yeah, there's some beatle stuff that I picked up on this one. I guess... Melodically, for sure, yeah. The ending bit sounded a bit like a McCartney-style ending, for sure. But it's not overt. It's just sort of channeling similar kind of vibe. So Sunday's best, track nine. I normally don't go for these kooky Tim Burton-y sort of waltz things. Okay. Oddly enough, for me, this, I think, is his best vocal on the record. Oh, interesting. Okay. It's a wild, ragged vocal, but there's so many strange words in here. Standing in your socks and vest. <laughs> yeah. Such a weird, yeah. Stylish slacks to suit mm -hmm. your pocket, 
back supports and picture lockets, sleepy towns and sleeper trains, to the dogs and down the drains. These are crazy words. Major roads and ladies' smalls, hearts of oak and long trunk calls, continental interference at death's door with life insurance. (laughs) What a bunch of tongue twisters. Now, what's interesting to me about this song is that it just doesn't belong in this album at all to me. This is... This belongs at the end of Taking Liberties, which was, if you're an American, then you know Taking Liberties as the album that came out in 81-ish that collected up the Mm B-sides and the left out tracks. So this wasn't on the American Armed Forces. So the American Armed Forces I heard did not have Sunday's Best. It omitted Sunday's Best and went straight to Moods for Moderns, and it had the Nick Lowe at the end instead. Yeah, so this was the B-side of Accidents Will Happen. Now, I think for American Elvis fans, Taking Liberties is a major album. That's where we got to know I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea. It's ah, not on the American this year's model. It's on Taking Liberties, as is Clean Money, which was, I think, planned to be the original opening track for Armed Forces, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So it's got oh, big tears and talking in the dark, so many good songs. But that's where this song belongs for me. So I would just make that distinction that it sounds weird to me listening to this album and hearing that song at all. What's your take on this song orally on this album? I mean, does it belong here to your ear? It almost sounds like a novelty track to me because of that, like I said, that Tim Burton kind of psycho circus thing. And the sloppy drunken quality of of it compared to the tightness and precision of the rest of the album too, right? Yeah. I mean, I was ready to accept it, you know, because I didn't know any better. I mean, it's not- No, it's the real deal. It's the actual album track. I mean, I can't defend the American version, which is edited, you know, so- I don't know. The the thing I think I'm most attracted to about Elvis Costello as a songwriter is the honesty and- him laying himself bare. And that goes back to what we were talking about. You know, even when the thoughts are ugly, he has those thoughts and he presents them to you and they feel earnest. They feel like this is me, warts and all, this is who I am, or this is the emotion I'm trying to invoke. With this song, it felt a bit performative. It felt a bit, yeah, not contrived, but like there's a there's a manufactured quality to it. He's borrowing from something other than, to me, what I perceived as his authentic self. And for that reason alone, it kind of stuck out to me. It kind of hits you like a... It is a bit of a Randy Newman, short people type song, right? Where mm-hmm. the speaker of this song is a persona. It's not Elvis. He's sure. not narrating his thoughts here. By the way, this song has the weirdest fucking rhyme. At the end here, put them all in boots and cocky? Blame it all upon the dockies. So he rhymed cocky with dockies. And isn't it khaki? Is that just American to say khaki? Oh, maybe you're right. It's it's K-H-A-K-I. That's khaki, like khaki pants. Right. Yeah, that's what I assumed it was. Yeah. But he pronounces it cocky and he he rhymes it with dockies, meaning darkies. Again, it's a persona. It's not Elvis saying that. Right. Yeah. It's meant to be a, a bigoted persona, but I just thought the rhyme was bizarre. Did the British actually pronounce khaki cocky? Uh, we <laughs> Lots of pun potential, if that's how they pronounce it. Like, we should have heard more <laughs> puns on that by now. <laughs> I do love that as the feedback to that. It's like, hey, listen, let us know, because there's so much let pun potential for that. 
<laughs> my last note on this track was so this song's about Nazis, huh? Hmm. A lot of this album's about Nazis. Yeah, they're all about Nazis, yeah, I think. They're all about Nazis, yeah. <laughs> Nazis. I hate these guys. Emotional fascism. So it's about power in romantic relationships, and it's about power in sexual relationships, mm. and those aren't always concomitant. Yeah. Wow, well, that's a funky word to pull out for that topic. You win the Scrabble Prize. Uh, that's I, very, won the, I just got a little Scrabble Prize. Yeah. Very Elvis I'll take it. I'll so, take it. I'll take it. That <laughs> brings us to track 10 here, Moods <laughs> for Moderns. Now, Moods for Moderns. So that's a 60s expression, Moods for Moderns. My first note on this is, oh yeah, I love this. <laughs> like, I... This is another one that hit me real hard on that first listen. Really dig it. Some of that big 80s sound, but prior to the 80s even beginning, I feel like this was maybe the forerunner of a lot of what people were looking to emulate in the decade to come. So I think moderns, it is an old-fashioned term. I've got a Frank Sinatra album. It's actually the album Strangers in the Night. It's a problematic album, but it's 1966. And the cover of that album says, the ever-popular Frank Sinatra sings for moderns. What do they say in uh, Hard Day's Night, right? Are you a mod or a rocker? Are you yeah, a okay. mod? Okay, yeah. A mod. A mod. Well, that, well, that's a whole quadrophenia thing, too, the mods. I think moderns means something a little more broad than that, like modern youths, hmm. who might be a little bit more sexually adventurous, Thank might you. be a little more uh, adventurous in their drug usage. They're moderns. It's the 60s. I mean, hey, Frank was down. You know. I think that's what this, I'm just trying to figure out where this comes from. Because also moods, you get albums like the many moods of, Frank Sinatra never did that album, but you get the many moods of some crooner, right? So moods and moods for moderns, this is a throwback phrase. Hmm. But yeah. it's a very modern sounding track. Modern for 1978, actually. I think it, yeah, it predates a lot of stuff. I mean, there's that ambient 80s, thing kind of happening in this song for me and it feels like it exists in all of these different decades at once even the decades that hadn't happened at the time of its recording and interestingly enough i found that there was a detroit power pop band in the late 90s that took this song as inspiration for their name moods for moderns and uh some of those members had some relations to friends of my other show the third men podcast which i thought was interesting i had no idea that this song had that kind of resonance so that was interesting, too. But yeah, no, I love this track. Well, what I'm reading here is a song about a an open relationship. There's um, a modern idea for you, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, basically, moods for moderns, let them break us strong and sudden foreign fingers. Uh, I let you into foreign fingers. And so it seems to be another song where someone is putting up with additional lovers and in this case, maybe embracing it. Hmm. I never thought that I would see the day. I never thought that I would give you away. Let them break us. Foreign fingers. Yeah, so I think there's something going on here. You know, there's never been a how do you do. There's never been an ending. Soon you'll belong to someone else, and I'll be your stranger just pretending. Hmm. So this is some kind of open relationship deal. Wow. 
Moods for Moderns. It's this. There's some painful stuff on this album. There's some <laughs> heavy stuff. Elvis, do you need a hug? You think you might be spending too much time alone? Yeah, or or worse, <laughs> at a key party or something. It's which is where it sounds like you're spending your time. Well, it gets worse from here because we're going on to chemistry, chemistry class, class and two little Hitlers. So uh, chemistry Nazis. class. These are both songs that deal. Well, we've had several songs deal with Nazi themes. We also had "You'll Never Get to Make a Lampshade Out of Me." Yes, on Goon Squad. Right. And now in chemistry class, we're going to get a really distasteful pun. It's uh, "Are you ready for the final solution?" Can you make that pun? That's a pretty fucked up pun. It is. When I got to that line, that's when I started to think this whole album was about Nazis. <laughs> when I didn't, yeah, again, I think this whole album is kind of about Nazis, man. First, <laughs> first Nazis. listen again, not reading anything or knowing anything about Elvis's life. I get to that line and I go, and I'm thinking back Whoa. to Sunday's best. Wait, just a tick. What the hell? Yeah, Is just this a tick? whole thing about Nazis? I pulled out the line here, chopped you up in butcher's school. You're in the Academy of Garbage. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? Jesus, Elvis. <laughs> You'll Holy be shit. a joke all your life, a student at the comedy college. Good yeah. God. Yeah. It's very, I mean, this is very, and by the way, Elvis is kind of a master of second person hatred. Hmm. So he writes a lot of songs in second person where he's saying, you are terrible. You suck. Look at you, you contemptible person. There are a lot of these songs and look at how much second person there is in the first few years of Elvis's work. My therapist would be very disappointed in him. Uh, <laughs> you have to use I statements, Elvis. Blaming someone else? Yeah. He's into you statements. <laughs> Even when he's talking about himself, he's into you statements. Yeah. Uh, you a- <laughs> asshole. Meaning me, but you. <laughs> so this is another track where I very much appreciate the heavy feel to it. You know, those kick drum thumps and those deep toms going on and the incredible bass. That's a beautiful production. Oh God. And the piano just soars above oh, it all. It's just God. really, really gorgeous. And funnily enough, I had mentioned chemistry class in my bullet corner. That was actually written before I had heard this song or the no title. No kidding. Really? I assumed it was a reference. It was in the ether on this one. I don't know what, wow. but uh, yeah, it was there. I think I do have a quote here. Chemistry class was a reaction to the complacence of some of the university campuses that we visited on those first trips to America. As a teenager, I'd grown up reading magazine articles about radical student politics in the 60s. At times, we seemed to only encounter uncomprehending hedonism and braying superficiality. Wow. I could only imagine such people sliding blithely into some repressive future. Holy shit. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what happened was, I think, and probably around this time, you know, college started to evolve into high school too. Then it kind of became a rite of passage, one that you had to pay through the nose for. I don't know. Maybe that's what Elvis is responding to is that evolution of what it means to be that age. Well, it certainly meant something different in 79 than it had in 69, if that's what he's reacting to. You know, yeah. or 68 and 78. Whatever. I mean, who can blame them? They were getting fucking shot 
for saying what they wanted to say in 69. So like, yeah, is it easier to be vapid than to say what you feel and get killed? You know? Yeah. The other thing I have to point out about this song is this great moment where he says, if it wasn't for some accidents, (laughs) (laughs) they did a punch in, they did an awkward punch in on purpose. God bless them for that. So do you, I mean, you know, do you get to make a pun about the final solution? Well, I don't know. Do you get to write a song called Two Little Hitlers? This is the closing track of the British version, by the way. So let's keep that in mind. And this is a track, Two Little Hitlers, track 12, is what Ryan talked to me about when we were talking about that Nick Lowe album, because it's kind of a passing reference to the Nick Lowe song, Little Hitler. Little Hitler. Okay. And I remember Ryan talking about this one because he was was remarking about how devastating the lyrics of this song were because when you're listening to the song you kind of get the impression that elvis is seeing both of the people in the relationship he's writing about as being little hitlers like emotional fascism someone has to be in charge right they're both the alpha they're both trying to take from each other and it's just there's the line that and i think ryan pulled this one out it's all so calculated she's got a calculator she's my soft touch typewriter and i'm the great dictator i'm the great dictator Now that's a, okay, for a song as, let's say, morally dubious as Two Little Hitlers, (laughs) that's a really good lyric. She's a a soft-touch typewriter, and I'm the great dictator, just that. The diction on it. She's my soft-touch typewriter. Like, it's not even the right stresses, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm the great dictator. Now listen, I'm fluent in dad jokes. I got a million of them, okay? Puns are in my vocabulary. That pun is next fucking level right there. That's yeah, really well, that's point. why we're saying like Elvis Costello, Stephen Sondheim, there are people who take puns to another level. A whole other level. And there are people who take it to a level where you expect it. You're expecting the puns and they need to be there. And if you're doing it, this is what you're doing with it. My God. I mean, it's all worth it, you know? Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. And you get Pete back there with those drums just absolutely crushing it. This song is another one where I'm just like, holy, this band is at the height of their powers here. I don't see how they get any better than this. I mean, do they? You would know. I don't know. Do they get better? (laughs) I would argue they do. It's called Get Happy. I mean, that's a cocaine album. It's 48 minutes and 20 songs. Holy shit. (laughs) And it's a lot of cocaine. Yeah, no, I think that's the album. That and King of America. But how does anyone get away with this? You know? And there's some beautiful rhyming in here, selective dating, effective mating. You know, I I thought I let you down, dear, but you were just deflating. That's such an amazing moment. I thought I let you down, but it wasn't me. You had lost energy. Like, that's an incredible lyric. This whole song is that. So this is what they chose to end the original British version of the album with. And what a dark place to end.
when you're 24, everything gets blown out of proportion. And you see your life as this grand thing and all this. I guess what I'm saying is, though, it's not unusual to me that you would take it to that extreme because that's an age of extremes, I would say. And so, yes, yes. Yeah. He took it to an extreme that got him international notoriety. Yes. You've got to understand that he did this and it worked. I mean, he did it on his first two albums and it worked and he took it further on this one and it really worked emotional fascism. That's what the album is about. And this song brings it all to a head, except in the American version, we end with a Nick Lowe B-side sung by Elvis Costello and the attractions with great energy. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? As I walk through this wicked world searching for And the Nick Lowe version is one that Ryan and I talked about actually on the Now Hear This podcast before. And that was when I first realized that this was even a cover. I did not realize that this was a cover because it has become so synonymous with Elvis Costello over the years that, uh, you know, when people think of Elvis Costello's biggest hits, they think of, you know, what's so funny about peace, love and understanding. I don't want to go to Chelsea. You know, like there's only a, there's not that, there's like five or six, like, main songs he's known for and this is one of them that's right and he does it to this day we've we've been stuck with it in concerts for decades <laughs> and uh right. it's his it's his hey jude now i love the part where he asks just the women to do the thing and then he pray he just sort of cocks his hips back and forth it's embarrassing for everyone <laughs> <laughs> yeah well what he says here in the rhino notes it's just a uh, one sentence but i like it We certainly attacked the song with little sense of irony and as if it were obvious that no one knew the answer to the question that the song posed. Yeah. So he might be fooling around with it today, but the version that we have, again, on the American Armed Forces is pretty angry. It's kind of an angry what the hell is going on song. Which is fitting with his whole oeuvre, you know, I mean, it's Mm -hmm. his whole, that's his whole thing. And, And that's fine. You can approach the question from that angle. Certainly. It's probably warranted to approach it. <laughs> yeah. From yeah. That ankle. It's quite interesting. It makes some sense, I guess, from Columbia's point of view. It, it's a song about peace, love, and understanding, ending an album called Armed Forces. It's a happy ending. It's a Hollywood happy ending. Oh, that's interesting. Hollywood wasn't having it with two little Hitlers ending the album. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, Shades of uh, Tug of War, where you've got Ebony and Ivory in the end there talking all about harmony and stuff. Right. I was vaguely aware of this song. I mean, it's it's the song, as I mentioned, you know, that people would hear from him. I think it's a strong take on the track. I find his version and Nick Lowe's version to be about as enjoyable to me. I don't really have a strong preference one way or the other. I think Elvis takes his voice to some odd, interesting places in this song. He does. It's a place he comes back to on Get Happy and Trust. It's sort of an R&B take that he's doing, actually, with his vocal there. Sure, yeah. And I mean, ultimately, like with most of these songs, to me, it works through Elvis's strength of personality. Mm -hmm. He sells you on it because he throws 
it seems his whole being into everything he does. <laughs> and so you have no choice but to be sold this thing because he's selling it so well. And it sort of smacks you across the face a little bit, even though it's a song about peace and love. It does kind of smack you around a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> it absolutely does. That's why I say it. it's a very angry take on the topic, you know. And I'm not right. sure that Nick Lowe's version is equally enraged, you know. It's not what the hell's going on in the same way that Elvis's version is. Yeah. Listeners to the show know that I, I host a Jack White podcast called The Third Men, plug, plug, plug. And on that discography, Jack White's discography, he has a song called Why Walk a Dog, which is a rumination on pet ownership and the absurdity of pet ownership through the eyes of a detached individual. And one of the lines in that is, what is so funny about beasts above understanding? Ooh, very nice. Which is kind of a nice little play on that. Yeah, I want to say that Carl Sagan once commented on how absurd pet ownership might look from an alien perspective. Yeah. That we're kind of enslaving and, right. you know, these animals, keeping them captive, castrating them. Um, yeah. So somebody, I believe the rest of the line is, uh, so somebody mated them and took their babies away from them, put a price tag on their nose, and now you're buying it clothes. Anyway, so that's the shame all you pet owners. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but anyway, uh, I digress. That's sort of not pertaining to this song in particular. But yeah, I, I like this one. I think it's a strong way to end the album, actually. It's a it's a nice... I know it's it's sort of against type for the rest of the record, but I, I like it. It ends it ends on a, on a good note for me. Sure. So that wraps up the album. I was going to add a funny little addendum here. I'm holding in my hands a, a pair of Linda Ronstadt albums from 78 and 80. Living in the USA and Mad Love, respectively. Uh And she did a little batch of Elvis Costello songs on these albums. So Living in the USA from 78 has her version of Allison. It's just the year after Allison came out. Wow. And of course, it's... It's not a great interpretation. You know, it's not a not a good Linda Ronstadt choice, but, you know, I'm a fan of her work in the 70s. She was this sort of curator for about a decade there and made some really wonderful records. This one seems to be a little insensitive to what the song is really about, but it's there. She's trying to sort of promote a songwriter, I guess, that she's found. I don't know the whole story. But over on Mad Love, we get Party Girl, uh-huh. Linda Ronstadt's Party Girl. Girls Talk, which is a song that's kind of associated with this period, and Talking in the Dark, also associated with the Armed Forces period. Talking in the Dark in particular is a facsimile, pretty much. Yeah. It almost sounds as if they just grabbed the tracks and let her sing over it. That's not it, but it's that close in terms of the arrangement and the playing style. Party Girl's a little bit looser. And it's strange because she sings them all pretty much from the original gender perspective. Yeah. I don't know if she's just trying to get in on the new wave action or what. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm sort of struggling to wrap my brain around what that would sound like, but I guess we could drop a little bit of that in here. I tried again to drive the same 
Thank you, Chris. And I guess, you know, on your Take It Away podcast, you guys do press. And on the Now Hear This podcast, we have tweaked that slightly with a bit of reception. Uh-huh. Gentlemen, you've just recorded your first number one. Wow, an award statue! Oh, it's a Grammy! We're going to talk a little bit about how this album was received when it came out. It charted around the world and performed fairly well in some places better than others. In the UK, it charted at the number two position. That is the highest it charted anywhere at the time. Although in the United States, it did crack the top 10 in the Billboard Top 200, Mm. coming in at number 10. Wow. Number 11 in Sweden, 12 in Norway, nine in New Zealand, 13 in the Dutch charts, eight in Canada, nine in the Australian album charts. So it's, you know, it's top 20 around the world, certainly top 15. Yeah. That speaks to Elvis's rising stardom. You know, he's reaching out to people in Norway and Linda Ronstadt and all sorts of (laughs) folks around this time. (laughs) Yeah. He's, uh, He's on his way up as of 1978, for sure. Yeah. yeah, and in 1979, a review in Rolling Stone writer Janet Maslin felt the album was, quote, killer in several senses of the word, which is a nice little quote there, remarking on the brief energetic songs with dense and sometimes overly clever but snappy lyrics. Maslin felt that Costello, quote, wants to be daring, but he also wants to dance. Well, he did write no dancing in, on the previous album, but... But, you know, when you look at those videos, and they are pretty good from that time, those early videos of his, he has a few from this album. And I do like his little crazy legs, Buddy Holly sort of... Yeah, pigeon toes. Yeah. ...thing he's doing. He, yeah, he's, he's walking around. It looks like there's something, he's got a problem, like a medical condition or something, but he's, I think he's just grooving, you know? He's, yeah. He's making groovy music, so it makes yeah, sense. Absolutely. And then I pulled another one here from Ryan's favorite, Robert Christgau. In 1979, Robert wrote in The Village Voice that he felt Costello was using words to, quote, add color and detail to his music rather than as a, quote, thinking, feeling person. <laughs> that's, <laughs> <Though> he... <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> that's true Though... of Smile, I think. I think that's true of Van Dyke Park's on Smile. I don't know if that's true of Armed Forces, but... Though he approved of the, quote, intricate pop constructions and found the overall album to be good, but not great. <laughs> <laughs> no, not up to Chris Gal standards. That's okay. He um, famously poops on stuff. So that makes sense. I kind of find his reviews to be funny and interesting, too. Well, that comment about the lyrics, though, it does make me think about what we were saying in a positive way, which is that the lyrics kind of gesture toward things. And there's like, they're like constellations of ideas, yeah. but it doesn't spell things out for you, you know? No. And you can let the music hit you too. And that's what I think that Rolling Stone interview was talking about is, you know, if you were to listen to some of these tracks, I'll pick on Green Shirt for a moment, just because I love that track. And I really had no particular interest in finding out what the lyrics were until we talked about it, really, because it didn't matter to me. The groove was so strong. And that's one of his talents is that he's he's able to make rock and roll music to dance to it's 
kind of what in my mind justifies his namesake is mm. that he is making rock and roll in the tradition of those early rockers just updated for the late 70s and and onward yeah. so yeah i mean there's validity to that too absolutely and maybe you know as one of the things i read earlier suggested that's how you smuggle these ideas in right chris this was so much fun absolutely man back at you this was great and just a, a pleasure to talk about this album, you know, looking at it so up close, I really was surprised at how dark it really is. Like a little, a little taken aback to, to see the details are, you know, confronted in this way. I suspect a closer look at most of his albums would probably give you a similar. <laughs> well, sequel, that's what you know? I'm taking away from this. Yeah. I'm wanting yeah. to go back and look much more closely at some of these songs now. Thing, you know, albums like Blood and Chocolate that have things that I know are really brutal on them. Well, how much more brutal are they when you really look at them? I think this is going to be a springboard for some very special Elvis listening for me. Likewise. And thank you, Chris, uh, for joining me on this journey. You're the first one up in the list of people who are going to help me cover the albums that Ryan picked for this show. We've got a, a bunch more that I'm particularly interested in talking about and a bunch more that I know absolutely nothing about, which is sort of the point. So, you know, listeners, uh, stay tuned. We're going to continue this season on and continue this trek and learn something and dance a little bit, maybe, you know? Not me, but... Not you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Right. Thank you, Chris. This was fun. Thank and uh, for everybody knows, I'm sure I said this at the top, but if you're listening to the show, you probably know what Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney Archive podcast is. Give that a listen. And also, Chris, is there anything else you'd like to plug before we leave today? Is there anything else you'd like to direct our listeners to? Maybe some of your own music, perhaps? Sure. Yeah. Check out some of my albums on Bandcamp. It's listed as Mercer. If you type in Mercer Antihistamine, strange as that might sound, you'll be at my Bandcamp <laughs> site. And there's a good variety of things there. And thanks, Paul, for bringing up Take It Away. And if you're interested in Paul McCartney, keep your eye on that. And if you're interested in Solo Beatles, keep your eye on that. There's some fun stuff in store. So, all right. Thanks, everybody. So I guess I'm going to sign off uh, the way we sign off every episode of Now Hear This. Enjoy every sandwich. And we'll see you back here next time. Do you have an opinion about the album we discussed today? Contact us at at now hear this podcast on Instagram, at now hear this pod on Twitter, facebook.com slash now hear this podcast, or email us at now hear this official at gmail.com. See you next time. Well, hey, Ryan. Hey, Paul. How are you? Well, I'm good. I'm here to tell the listeners that if they'd like to contribute mm. to help keeping these Now Hear This episodes coming, well, they can donate featuring the wonderful new donation technology that ACAST has developed for us. That's right. ACAST has helped us out. They host the show. Yeah, our hosts, ACAST, have made it really easy to donate to the show. They have an ACAST supporter feature, and there's a link in the show description that you can follow to kick a couple bucks for the show. It can be five bucks, a hundred bucks, less than a dollar. We don't care. Yeah, just something to keep the lights on. It's all out of pocket, and we do this out of love, and that's it. And we love you all for listening. Thank you very much for doing that. Couldn't said it better myself. It's okay. <laughs>
All right, we'll buy then. <laughs>